jolly big shuffle cut and deal and all the smart players got a way to steal if you're a believer you'll find out fast like life and you pick up nothing's made to last used cars everybody's got one to trade used cars everybody's got one to sell used car buyer take care buyer beware Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a special treat for me because this is a movie I have been trying to find a co-host for for like three years. This was absolutely one of the first movies I ever wanted to cover on Staff Picks. And the problem was I just could not find a host whoever I, who seemed to know this movie or loved it as much as I do. And the movie we are talking about is the 1980 Kurt Russell classic, Used Cars, which I will go to my grave saying is one of the funniest movies of the 80s. And it astounds me that nobody seems to know about it. And even the people who know about it don't even talk about it. So, like, this movie absolutely needs somebody to talk about it, and I think this is probably the perfect podcast for it. Again, this could not be a more perfect candidate for staff picks. And my guest for this episode, I have had him on before. He was my guest for Honeymoon in Vegas, another personal favorite of mine. I know him uh, from Facebook and Letterboxd. He's kind of an amateur movie critic, kind of like I am. He podcasts. He just knows a lot about movies. I believe he actually still does it. He he writes a movie review every single day for a movie. So he's perfect candidate to have on the show. And I just happened to catch him a while back. He had posted about used cars. And I'm like, yes, yes, you are coming on my podcast. We are finally talking about this masterpiece. So welcome back to the show, Johnny Pomato. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here and for a good cause. Yes, a, a fellow used cars fan. I cannot tell you how valuable that is in my world. Y- yes, there's not many of us. Uh, there should be more. Perhaps we can make more. Okay, to set this up, I will let you introduce yourself for a second, but I just have to say this. In 1980, Columbia Pictures did a screening of a new comedy, their new movie with Kurt Russell called Used Cars. It got the highest test score of any movie they had ever had before at Columbia Pictures. So that's the type of movie we're talking about here, and it astounds me. Again, it infuriates me that this movie was never as beloved as it should have been. I agree uh, completely. And yes, I I uh, know this history as well, that it it just tested through the roof. They said, we have gold here, and uh, let's just uh, move it up in the schedule. And unfortunately, uh, I believe they moved it a week after the opening of a film called Airplane, and it just got buried, and no one wanted to watch any other comedy other than uh, the hijinks of Leslie Nielsen and Robert Hayes in the Sky. Yeah, and it's like I would personally argue Airplane is probably the funniest movie of the 80s. But I'd probably put used cars still somewhere in the top ten. Like, that was a really good week for comedy, and it sucks that this one just got absolutely obliterated. Yeah, and it is a very unique type of comedy because, I don't know, it's not really heavy on jokes per se. You know, this isn't the most quotable movie of all time or quotable comedy, certainly, of the 80s. Uh, But it's just a vibe movie. It's a hangout movie. I would uh, put it a little closer to uh, something like Caddyshack. I vastly prefer this to Caddyshack, even though I I have some affection for that film. Uh, But, like, you know, that movie, I think, is a little more uh, character-based and joke-based, whereas this is just uh, an atmosphere, a a whole attitude, and uh, it's just a bunch of characters that you want to sort of hang out with. 
Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. It's like an attitude movie. Like, you're just hanging out with Kurt Russell for 90 minutes at his peak. Like, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, absolutely. And because Kurt Russell just seems like the coolest guy in the world, except he hasn't made a lot of movies that really displays that laid-back, cool energy that he seems to have in life. You know, uh, so much of the time he is uh, fighting monsters or, uh, you know, sort of, uh, even if he's the lighthearted guy in an action movie, it's still a uh, sort of, you know, serious action movie. Like even Tango and Cash, uh, which, you know, ha is sort of a romp. Uh, he's It's still a, you know, a high stakes thing and with guns. And this is just like, oh, Kurt Russell hanging out. Like the only other films that, you know, come to mind in this genre of Kurt Russell movies are like Overboard or uh, Captain Ron. And I wouldn't call these great comedies per se. Uh, but this is just a, oh God, you look at Kurt Russell on screen and you say, I just want to have a beer with that guy. <laughs> It's funny, when I was growing up as a kid in the 80s, now, this movie came out when I was six years old, so clearly I didn't see this in the theater. For people who have not seen it before, this is a pretty raunchy R-rated movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I didn't see this movie. I really didn't know Kurt Russell much as a kid. He was never on my radar. In fact, my wife and I often joked that when we were young, we got him mixed up with Michael Douglas. We always thought they were the same person. Mm. <laughs> and so, like, it's been a, a, a bit of a late, uh, later life renaissance for me going to discover all these older Kurt Russell movies that I didn't know at the time. I didn't realize what a big deal he was. Yeah, and this was his First real uh, movie outside of the Disney verse. I mean, that's probably where I discovered him as a kid. Uh, and, and I didn't even really uh, associate the jump from, you know, kid actor to adult in all of his old, like, Fred McMurray movies and the computer war tennis shoes and uh, Strongest Man in the World. Like, he did so many of those. And I think he was desperate to break out of it and to be taken seriously. And, uh, uh, and he uh, he finally got to do that a little with the John Carpenter Elvis uh, uh, made for TV movie, uh, which I think was a, a real big deal at the time. I actually just watched that last week. Total, total coincidence. Uh, I don't know uh, how I, I just pulled it off the shelf one day. But um, and uh, he's great in that. And it really is a like, ooh, Kurt is all grown up. Look, he, he, he's no longer that boyish kid that uh, Walt Disney purportedly had his last words about. And then this was his uh, follow-up film to that, was, uh, uh, you know, Used Cars came right after the Elvis miniseries. And, but he had already uh, made this, you know, uh, connection with John Carpenter with Elvis. And then for the next five, six years, so much of what he was doing would be uh, John Carpenter movies. And we're all better off for that, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have never seen that Elvis movie. And I keep meaning to watch it because I know Kurt Russell's really good in it. But like I said, I'm only kind of discovering a lot of his stuff later in life. <laughs> now, it's worth seeing, right? It is. Uh, I will say it was a made for TV movie. And so it is about three hours long and you really feel it. And also, unfortunately, uh, not only does Kurt not do his own singing in it, but neither does Elvis. Uh, he's dubbed by another singer entirely. So when it cuts to the music, you're you're n neither seeing Kurt do like a really good performance you know which I, I bet he was capable of uh humming out a few bars uh but you know he's doing bad lip syncing to someone who's not elvis and it, it kind of stops the movie but it does have some real high points throughout i would say and as a you know for john carpenter completist or kurt russell completist too uh i would say it's uh, well worth seeing okay well i guess i have to talk about the elephant in the room here you guys have already heard johnny talk about some movies that aren't even used cars he's already introduced you to a couple of other things 
Johnny's one of the few people I know on the internet who knows way more about movies and way more movies than I do. So I want you to explain what you do to people if they want to follow you on Facebook or Letterboxd, because I'm always impressed at how many reviews you crank out. I did this as a sort of experiment this year. I think it was uh, aided by uh, the pandemic, but I used to like just log my, my uh, every movie I saw, I would like write a thing on Twitter or Facebook or something just for the sake of my friends as conversation starters of like, oh, I watched this movie last night. It was, you know, number 187 of the year. And, uh, and two sentences to say what I think about it. And yeah, sometimes it would like spark off in a little discussion and that would be fun. Uh, because I had so much extra free time this year, I uh, devoted uh, – I decided that I would uh, write a full review for every film that I saw, uh, which I'm closing in on about 600 for the year. And so I, I've done a lot of writing this year. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Johnny Pomato. And uh, I uh, – yeah, I, I do get a lot out of it. Uh, just it's good practice to uh, go back to – uh, getting my thoughts out on paper or on the computer, as it were. And uh, yeah, just just a, a better way to uh, consider what I think about a film as opposed to just merely enjoy it while I watch it. Or not enjoy it, depending on what I'm watching. Like last night, my wife, want, wife wanted to watch uh, the Mario Brothers movie. So, you know, <laughs> they can't all be winners. I apologize for giving my name to that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny's reviews are really well done, and I usually agree with them. I mean, there's there are a couple that I, I I think we're a little bit off on, but for the most part, I'm like I can see where he's coming from and I see his points. And I'll be flat out honest, it's kind of cheating when I pick him as a guest host for staff picks, because a lot of the time it's just because I can't find anybody who knows this movie, but I absolutely know Johnny knows this movie. There's no doubt in my mind. So it's almost cheating pulling you on here, because you could do this for almost every episode, I would imagine. I think I am a pretty avid listener to uh, staff picks, and uh, I'm trying to think if there has been a rare episode that I uh, was not aware of. I mean, aside from maybe the title, uh, but uh, I, I think I've seen most of them. And uh, likewise, I think uh, you and I do see eye to eye uh, for the most part on things. Uh, I have not heard your very bad things episode yet, but uh, ooh, I don't know. I'm a little reticent to revisit that one myself. Wasn't a fan, but I am curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, for people who don't know, Very Bad Things, one of the most polarizing movies ever made. I happen to love it. My wife happens to love it, too, which I was shocked by. That's not really her type of movie. But it's the only movie I've ever seen where the entire audience walked out before the movie was over. And I was so impressed that a movie had that kind of power that I've had to love it. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it definitely, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes an impact for better or worse. Uh, but yeah, you know, there, there, there's certainly things about it I like. Great cast. Uh, that, that's what got me in uh, my button to that uh, seat that day. But uh, I and I did stay till the end, although I, uh, I, I don't know if I should have. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm not entirely sure the order in which I'm going to release these episodes. So very bad things for my listeners may already be out. It just, just depends on which episode I want to do first. But yeah, it's, uh, wait for that one. That's uh, quite a discussion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get back to used cars here. So, like you said, Kurt Russell coming off the Disney thing where he was, you know, Mr. Golden Boy, the Disney child and all the, the, the family-friendly movies. He's trying to break out here. This is really his first really raunchy R-rated comedy. And it's funny when I watch this, it just absolutely reminds me that Stripes came out right around this time, maybe a year or so within uh, used cars. And Bill Murray in 1980 is a lot like Kurt Russell in 1980. And, like, it's amazing how different their career arcs went. Yes. 
Uh, in fact, uh, I was just listening. In addition to watching the film uh, again yesterday, just to refresh my memory, I uh, enjoyed it so much I put on the commentary track afterwards. And the whole time they are joking that like, oh, this movie would have been a hit with Bill Murray. Oh, if only we had got Bill Murray. But uh, they do have that similar um, smarminess but likability. And uh, yeah, I'd say that he's a little akin to uh, – yeah, a little stripes meets meatballs. Uh is this, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, Bill Murray might have had uh, too much of a meanness uh, because Kurt Russell is playing a pretty bad guy. I you love him, but he's almost irredeemable in some of the things that he does. Uh, you know, some of it's for the right reasons, but not all of it. Uh, but you just love him so much that you you can't you kind of give him a pass. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Murray would have gotten a similar pass. Yeah, that's a really good point that you brought that up because in my review of Meatballs, one of the things that I'm reminded when I watch Meatballs is how sweet Bill Murray is in that movie. He's so charming and likable and just a good guy. That yeah, I don't I don't know if Bill Murray really pulls off this role in quite the same way here as Kurt Russell does. Uh, exactly. I, and I do think that Meatballs is kind of that outlier. Like, you know, Murray wasn't even really supposed to be the star of that movie, but it was so electric, they just kept giving him more things to do. Because, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if he returned to that well that often, if, if, that uh, sincerity. And, uh, yeah, I do think that this uh, is uh, a more a sort of smarmier version of even the smarmy Bill Murray roles that we would get. Like you said, Stripes. Uh, you know, he is a uh, conniving guy in Stripes and such, but, uh, you know, he's ultimately good-hearted. And I don't know if uh, Rudy is, uh, but that's also, I think, what makes him such a good character. Yeah, okay, we're going to we're gonna talk about this plot, because this is a surprisingly dense plot for a comedy movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but this movie is really about the most irredeemable used car salesman on the face of the earth, Kurt Russell, playing a guy named Rudy Russo. And he gets involved in some shenanigans, and uh, it's really two car lots that are across the street from each other in Mesa, Arizona, and they're competing, where they're run by two brothers, and it's really just a uh, competition of shenanigans to see who can be the bigger car salesman, really. Yeah, I love this element of this feud, this family feud between, uh, uh, you know, two brothers. And, uh, you know, I, I God, I, I really would bend over backwards trying to, like, compare this to Shakespeare or something. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really like the Romeo and Juliet of uh, used car lot movies. Uh, but I, I don't know. It might be a bit of a reach. Okay, we're going to go into the plot here, but there's two other things I have to mention before we get into the story. And the first is I want to talk about the people who made this movie. And this is astonishing. Now, a lot of people don't know this. And this is really important. I know Johnny has notes up the butt about this. You're all ready to go on this. Who made this movie, Johnny? Well, this was made by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, uh, who uh, were, were still kind of new on the scene. They had made uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. But, uh, you know, coming down the pike from here, uh, it would be uh, Romancing the Stone and then uh, Back to the Future. So, you know, they were about to explode uh, on the scene. Uh, and, you know, th this was not the one that took. But you could still see a lot of the pieces of what would make those uh, upcoming films successful are already in place. And then, of course, you also have Spielberg producing this, uh, you know, real big buddies with uh bob zemeckis and uh yeah and uh, I, I guess he was uh on set quite a bit because he was having the time of his life uh spielberg not really known for comedies but i guess this really spoke to his own uh, comedic sensibilities 
Yeah, you have Steven Spielberg producing this movie. You have Kurt Russell starring in it at his peak. You have Robert Zemeckis making it right before he reels off Back to the Future, Romancing the Stone, Forrest Gump, Who's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, how could this movie possibly have failed? It was the highest testing comedy in Columbia Pictures history. It's got all sorts of big heavy hitters in the cast. This has everything any movie ever should have had to be a hit, yet it just wasn't. And it's one of the most astounding things ever. I think I uh, read a quote from Leonard Malton, who once said, you know, there's one thing I'll never understand. And that's why, why used cars never became a bigger hit, because all the ingredients are there. Well, it's interesting because Robert Zemeckis' movies, uh, or so many of them at least, the, the big ones, are ostensibly comedies. Like, Back to the Future is a comedy. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a comedy. It just is a high-concept comedy. It, they always have these other elements in them that make them otherworldly or, you know, or a real focus on special effects. Uh, Death Becomes Her, for instance. Like, I guess he doesn't get credit for being a comedy filmmaker uh, as much as he was just because there's always something to distract from the fact that you're laughing so hard. Usually these plots are really... Uh, involved and over the top, and they, they, they have these special effects that really upstage everything else, even though it's all coming together in a complete picture. And this is the only film, I would say, you know, along with, like, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and of course he wrote 1941, although I guess that falls into the high concept uh, category, uh, where it's just a pure comedy. It's just a, a pure, uh, you know, low stakes, uh, arguably, uh, of just like, oh, we have to save the car lot, and we have to defeat the evil jerk across the street. You know, th there's no... Uh, cartoon rabbits or, you know, time travel in this one. And uh, yeah, I, it's a reminder of just how funny uh, Zemeckis could be in the right circumstances. Yeah. And I think I read this is his only R-rated movie. Is that correct? Uh, I believe it was until he made Flight. And then maybe also uh, was the Brad Pitt, uh, Marion Cotillard uh, spy movie. Was that also an R-rated movie? Uh, but yes, it was his only R-rated movie for a very long time. Uh, I think partially because his films were, uh, you know, they appealed so much to wide audiences that no one wanted to limit that. I mean, even Forrest Gump, which deals with some somewhat adult material, like they, they, they make it palatable for so everyone can enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks Zemeckis just does this gentle little stuff. And this movie is pretty jarring because it is not gentle. It is pretty a pretty good R-rated comedy for its day. Now, I want to ask you, because I have a really interesting story that I've never really shared with people before. The first time you saw used cars, do you rem remember how you were introduced to it? Uh, yes, I I have a pretty strong memory that this was one of those movies that I saw as a kid on like, you know, a Saturday afternoon UHF station where it had to be heavily edited. I certainly <laughs> did not see the bare tits moment at that age. Uh, and then I was also young enough that like, I don't think I really got it all. It, it sort of went over my head, a lot of the jokes. And then it must have been dubbed within an inch of its life, all the language. But there was still something about the energy of it all and the, you know, the, the cars driving fast. I've never been a car guy, but, you know, I certainly like them in movies. And, um, I, yeah, I, there was something that I responded to with this one. I, I think that it has some major vibes uh, from, like, you know, the same as, like, Smokey and the Bandit or even one of your favorites, Bad News Bears, that, like, it, it feels like it's tucked right at home amongst those movies, even though it's its own beast entirely. And it wasn't until years later I – 
you know, it, it was, I guess when I was like maybe going through the Zemeckis catalogs, like, oh, yeah, I always forget that he did used cars. So let me give that another watch. And I think under the uh, the circumstances of a, a at home DVD or something, I, I just saw a completely different movie. And it's like, oh, wow, I a lot of this went over my head as a kid. But, uh, I, you know, I became an instant fan. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna share a story, and Johnny actually doesn't know this one. I'm afraid, I'm I'm sorry, I'm gonna blind you, blindside you with this story. It's gonna start out as a well, sad story. Wait. Yeah, it's I mean it's gonna start out as a sad story, but it's not a bummer. It's a happy story. So in 2003, I remember this like it was yesterday, January 8, 2003, my mom died. She had cancer. She passed away after a year of fighting it, and I had flown up to Seattle. Yeah, I had flown up to Seattle and uh, you know helped plan the funeral and everything. And I don't know if everyone has lived through this, this experience before, that after the funeral of, of a loved one, especially a parent, child, someone who's really close to you, everyone kind of comes back to the house and nobody knows what to do. It's just kind of a weird feeling because you don't know, like, what now? And it's like the day's not over. The funeral's usually in the morning. And so my family is sitting around and I'm like, does anybody want to watch a movie, like something to cheer us up or a comedy or something? And I have an uncle, David, who knows a lot of obscure older movies that I don't know. He's like... You know, we, have you ever seen Used Cars? And I'm like, what? I've never even heard of that movie. And I know a lot of comedies. I'd never heard of Used Cars. And he's like, hey, let's go to Blockbuster and rent it. You'll love it. If you like comedy movies, this will be right up your alley. Like, he's 30 years older than me. He's astounded that I've never heard of Used Cars. So hmm. we go to Blockbuster Video. They still have Blockbuster in 2003. Sure enough, Used Cars is not checked out, surprisingly. It's perfectly <laughs> available. And we watch it. And I'm sitting there. It's the evening of my mom's funeral. And I'm just giggling. I'm laughing my ass off at this movie that I've never heard of before. And I'm like, I cannot believe this movie exists and I'd never seen it before. And like, it's cheering me up on the day that you need the cheering up more than anything else in your life. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I will always have a fond memory. This is the movie we watched that night and it kind of made everybody happy again. Uh, that is great. Uh, I, you know, I, I think we all have one of those. We, uh, uh, th something that you remember watching on a sad day to, to cheer you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, this is a good one because it's it, it is so uh, so casual. So I mean, even if it does involve the uh, the the death of a beloved figure early <laughs> in the film, uh, you, you know, that's it doesn't dwell on that too deeply. You know, it's it, it's not too sad about it. And uh, yeah, it, it just uh, yeah, it would lift your spirits, wouldn't it? It is. That's the thing. It's that's the magic of comedy, and that is one of the things. Like, like uh, comedians kind of know this. I don't want to harp on this too much, but like comedy and comedians bring joy to the world, and that is a that is a thing that is very valuable, especially in like this era of COVID and stuff when things are not happy. Like comedians and people who put out content that make people laugh, that really adds a lot of value to the world. So. I will always thank Robert Zemeckis, Kurt Russell, everybody for putting this movie together that made me so happy on a day that I needed it. And like, I'm sure they know this movie was a flop. They're very disappointed it didn't work. But like, it really does help. Things like this help the world. And I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, it, I uh, I think that's a, a great uh, a great sentiment. And uh, you know, I think that whatever initial disappointment they had to have felt, uh, it probably helps them that they had a uh, robust careers almost immediately thereafter. Mm -hmm. And now they seem to look on this movie back uh, with such fondness. I highly, highly recommend the audio commentary, which I think I did listen to like 10 years ago when I first got the Blu-ray uh, and revisiting it. It's just 
uh, Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and Kurt Russell watching the movie and laughing, just cackling throughout the whole <laughs> thing. And it, it just feels like you're watching it with like some buddies. It's great. I think I've heard that before. They're just drunk the entire time, right? Uh, that's the sense that I got. No one laughs that much while uh, completely sober. Okay. And before we get into the plot, I have to point out the irony here, that I just talked about seeing this movie on the day my mom's funeral. This movie is driven behind the plot of a parent dying and them faking the death. So I could not ignore the irony and the fact that I found that the funniest thing ever that day. So I have to point that out. Yeah, it absolutely could have uh, maybe uh, dipped in the other direction. It, it's, a, it's a gamble, I guess, to watch something about a dead parent. But uh, no, it's, it's just too funny, all, all that follows. Okay, so are you ready to delve into, uh, again, like I said, a surprisingly dense plot for a comedy movie? Yeah, this is a long movie. It's almost two hours. And, like, I think it reaches a point where you think, like, well, that's everything, right? You know, we, we've kind of solved everything. They, they they no longer are covering up the death of someone. Like, you know, everything's going to work out. He, Kurt Russell has the money. And then there's a whole other 20 minutes that has to go on. So it's like, <laughs> but, yeah, hey, who's complaining? More, more, I say. <laughs> okay, so here we go. We'll dive into the plot. Now, as I'm assuming most of you have not seen this. Although I have found from my experience that people who know used cars really love used cars and absolutely worship this movie. So I apologize if it feels like we're talking down to you, but I'm kind of explaining this to people who have never seen it before. So the movie is basically the story of two used car lots that are across the street from each other in Arizona. One is owned by a man named Luke Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, and the other one is owned by his brother, Roy L. Fuchs. And they are played in a dual role by Jack Warden, who is absolutely one of my favorite bad guy actors of this era. I love him in this movie. And yeah, I think it was a real turning point for Jack Warden, who, you know, he had certainly played characters a bit like this before, but he had also been nominated for Oscars for uh, 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 Shampoo and being there as well. So he also nominated for that. And um and yeah, he's a great actor, but this is the moment where he just fully embraces being an asshole. And like, I think th for the rest of his career, he would play characters like Roy Fuchs. R I, I should also note, I uh, never got the pun Roy L. Fuchs until watching it last night. I was like, oh, wow, this movie has layers. But yeah, after this, he would do, you know, the problem child movies and uh, uh, dirty work, stuff like that, where he was kind of playing the same guy every time, but he was so good at it. Yeah, and I definitely think that's the reason that happened is because he's just playing Roy L. Fuchs all over again. I bet, I think all these people yeah. loved him in used cars. They're like, I want that guy. That's the biggest asshole ever. And he's just constantly playing that the rest of his career. And beautifully, too. Yeah, although I should point out, this is the fun thing about this movie. The two brothers could not be more different. Roy L. Fuchs is a huge asshole, swears, screams, bullies, just a typical movie villain. And his brother, Luke Fuchs, is this kindly old doddering man who, like, is one heart attack away from death. And he's the sweetest, gentlest soul. So it's really funny seeing him play both of these. And it is odd that the movie gives you almost no backstory whatsoever to suggest why these two had a falling out, why they have these competing uh, car uh, businesses across the street from each other. This rivalry that really only seems fueled by Roy, uh, you know, less uh, less by Luke, who is certainly invested in this business, but he's a little more easygoing. He d doesn't seem to have as much animosity uh, for uh, what's across the street, although they do, you know, they are competing to, uh, to get, you know, uh, not bold dozed for the new highway i guess 
Uh, but yeah, it, you could do a whole other movie just about how we got to this point. You know, I don't, I don't know who you would cast as the Fuchs brothers today. But. <laughs> so you're saying we need a used cars prequel. We need to explain, expand the universe a little bit. I'm not ruling it out. I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if uh, Robert Zemeckis' last few films were as great as they could be, and, and maybe it's time <laughs> for him uh, to do, uh, you know, go back to the well, right? <laughs> Now, did you hear the story of how they hired Jack Warden for this role? Because I just read this this morning, and it cracked me up. I did. That uh, Well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they hired him for Roy, and, you know, he was he was somewhat interested, but he said it was his idea to play uh, Luke as well. Like, I'll only do it if I can play both brothers, and, like, who wouldn't leap at the chance to uh, to cast him in that? Okay, yeah, that's that's one variant of the story I've read. The other one I saw today, if you look at the spoilers on the IMDb, it has a little different story, is that Zemeckis and Gale absolutely wanted uh, Jack Warden to play both, or, the, or Roy Fuchs, the evil one, but he said no, he passed on it. And so they had read somewhere that there's three things that actors like in a movie, in a role. Oh, yeah, yes. That, and if you get in a fight, or if you die, or if you get to play multiple roles. So they wrote the movie in a way so he gets to do all those things. And they said, how about you play both roles? He's like, yeah, sure. So they basically tricked him into it. That's pretty great. Yes, I, I do. I, I guess I was paraphrasing the uh, the anecdote I heard on the commentary last night. Yeah. And again, I, who knows? It's kind of a legend by this point. This is a fairly big movie around among comedy fans. So who knows exactly what happened? But Oh, it's a print the legend sort of movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But all you have to know is that Jack Warden plays both brothers. They are forever competing for business with one another. But the real star of the movie is the nicer brother, uh, Luke Fuchs, has a star salesman. And this is our star of our movie. This is Kurt Russell in his star-making role. Maybe you can make the argument the greatest role he has ever played in his career, Rudy Russo, the ultimate con man. Yes, and, uh, you know, he is just this cocksure, confident guy who, you know, he has no reason to be, you know, other than his great looks. Uh, you know, he's suave and, and you know, is probably a devil with the ladies. But, you know, he's working at this just pitiful car lot, but he is, you know, I guess it's an easy place to be the star salesman at it. And, you know, he has all of these great, tremendous tactics of, you know, the, the opening scene. We see him uh, flipping the odometer down, and then, of course, you get that... $10 bill on a fishing line to lure someone from across the street, and by gum, it works, because it's Kurt Russell. Why wouldn't it? Yeah, okay, we'll explain that to people who have never seen this before. That, that is one of Kurt Russell's tricks in this in this movie. When there's customers over across the street at Roy L's car lot, he does something he literally calls baiting the customers, where he puts a, a $10 bill on a fish hook and throws it across the street on a fishing line, and when they try to pick it up, he just lures them right back to his lot. Which it's like the very first scene in the movie, and it's a perfect way to start off this movie that this guy will do absolute. He will stop at absolutely nothing to make a sale. Yeah, and I'd like to say that as a New Yorker, I have never bought a car. You know, you know, I I, I drive, but uh, not in, not locally. I, there's no need to own a car here, and uh, I have always kind of been afraid of the prospect of buying a car because of this movie. Because I just do not want to be their prey because uh, I, I, I see how they they operate and, and yeah it is rather uh, uh, terrifying I would say <laughs> well it's yeah it goes back to the old adage I mean everybody kind of assumes a used car salesman will be sleazy because what they do literally for their career is they try to sell you something that's a piece of crap and they want to make you think it's not a piece of crap and that's literally all they do they will starve if they can't do that and so I think a lot of the stereotypes of used car salesmen probably come from this movie because Kurt Russell is so perfect at it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to tell you a story. This doesn't relate to this movie, but I write about the TV show Survivor, which I know you're not. Oh, in. I know. Yeah. So in season five of Survivor, the producers went out and they're like, you know, what we'd really like to have on the show is a used car salesman. They were so excited. They wanted to bring Rudy Russo onto their show. And they went out and they recruited this guy named Brian Heideck, who was like the number two best-selling used car salesman in the entire country. <laughs> and they thought it would be such an amazing idea. But he was so good at Survivor and he just had no complaints, no problem with just lying to people to their face and doing the shadiest crap ever that they immediately cut ties with him and disavowed that season afterwards because he was too sleazy and too successful. Yeah, I guess he'd been training for it all of his life. Yeah, it would probably work to his advantage, I guess. <laughs> it was so exciting to watch at the time. I'm like, the producers hate this. They they really – be careful what you ask for. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, but I get the idea of wanting to get a, a character like that. It is a salt-of-the-earth profession. You know, a, lo a lot of people out there can uh, relate to that. Uh, uh, yeah, born salesman. But, uh, yeah, maybe maybe not good television. No. <laughs> So, so Rudy is just a complete sleazeball. All he cares about is lying to you to make a sale. We will see it constantly throughout this movie. He has no gumption whatsoever. He will do anything. Now, Johnny, my personal favorite tactic, I want to know your personal favorite Rudy Russo tactic. I like how no matter which customer he talks to, he will adopt his own nationality to be theirs. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking to an Irish couple. Oh, I'm Rudy O'Brien. How you doing? Lo, lo, top of the morning to you. Or, oh, Rudy, he finds out someone's Polish. Oh, hey, Rudy Polanski. How are you? Yeah. And like the, the later, last name always changes. Yeah. And, and sometimes the dialect, you know, uh, get it gets into a little dicey territory there of stuff that might not fly in a in, in the proposed prequel that we're uh, we're going to uh, talk to Zemeckis about making. Yeah. OK, well, let's just I'll just spill out what you're hinting at. In Airplane, we have the jive guys where you make fun of black dialogue. Well, this movie came out the same week as Airplane, so there's also black jive dialogue where Rudy must pretend to be black to uh, to blend in with his black customers. Like, hey, what it is, man? Rudy Washington Carver. How you doing, brother? So <laughs> that's the kind of comedy. Yeah, that's the kind of comedy we're talking about here. Okay, so Rudy works for uh, a company called New Deal, New Deal Used Cars, and we have a couple other players there. There's a guy named Jeff, who's like his salesman. There's Jim, his mechanic. There's a little dog named Toby, who kind of steals the movie. Uh, I would assume you're a Toby gotta fan. I love Toby. Oh, yeah, of course, you, you got to love Toby. Yeah, adorable. Well-trained dog, too. Can get the screwdriver out of a toolbox, and uh, yeah, I'll, 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 lots of little great bits that Toby gets to do. Okay, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in this plot because we got to keep this fair podcast fairly short. But the basic gist is Roy L. Fuchs, the evil brother, has the big successful car lot. The good guys across the street, the nice kindly brother, has the less successful car lot. But everyone kind of knows right now there's a freeway. The government, local government has proposed a new freeway going to go through town. And when the freeway is put in, all of a sudden the younger or the, the more successful Luke Fuchs brother in Kurt Russell's lot is going to be the most successful one. So the evil brother wants to buy that lot. He wants to get his hands on it. So they're going to forever be at each other's throats to try to buy each other's car lot. And that's the conflict here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Roy is a real bad guy. He will stop at nothing and he's not leaving anything to chance. And so, 
he basically orchestrates the murder of his own brother. I mean, it's a little hazy. It's like, did you mean for it to happen exactly this way? I mean, do you know that he is just a, a ticking time bomb if he can't get his hands on his heart pills? But yeah, he hires uh, one of his uh, little underlings to uh, go over and pretend to, uh, uh, you know, want a test drive of this uh, new Cadillac or something, and uh, just takes uh, poor Luke on this horrible ride that just uh, is too much for his ticker <laughs> yes uh again like i said it's perhaps a dicey movie to watch on the night of your mother's funeral but yeah they, we're gonna have a, a death of a beloved old man 10 minutes into this movie it's a very dark movie and it's very dark but i will say the death itself is one of the funniest moments in the film which is odd because he, you've really gotten to like this character in such a short time i guess because it's a little rare to see uh jack warden play such a little cuddly teddy bear type of old man with this little bristly mustache and such but yeah you, you know we we know that he's out there in this like you know deadly test drive and you know oh he's trying to find his pills he's trying to reach for it but oh gosh they keep swerving left and right and then meanwhile uh i, I guess it's rudy who is inside uh with another customer and uh you know in in a hard negotiating tactics here and and this one customer is not bending he says no i i won't pay uh i won't pay your price fifty dollars less fifty i i you know he he has his price hard and firm he says no one ever died from fifty dollars fifty dollars never killed anyone fifty dollars and then rudy says well okay i'm gonna go ask i'm gonna go see but i'm telling you i i think that uh, it's got to be this price walks out the guy says fifty dollars never killed anyone and then luke fuchs comes in clutching his heart foaming at the mouth and oh god it, it's just <laughs> such a huge laugh and i've never seen it with a live crowd but i can only imagine this bit just destroying yeah zemeckis sets up that joke so perfectly it's one of the greatest dark jokes i've ever seen in a movie that luke fuchs the kindly brother has been <laughs> driven across town in this crazy demolition car because they're trying to make him have a heart attack. The evil brother's trying to kill yeah. him. And, and so Luke Brooks is, Luke Fuchs has a heart attack and he's staggering into the dealership to tell someone to help him. Help me, I'm having a heart attack. And it's literally right before that line, Kurt Russell says, when my boss hears you're trying to, you know, you drop the price by 50 bucks, he's going to have a stroke. That's the line. Yeah. <laughs> so the minute he says my boss will have a stroke, the boss literally wanders in going Aah! and drooling. <laughs> and it's just chaos. <laughs> it's just one of the funniest dark jokes I have ever seen in a movie. And it sets the tone for the rest of the movie so nicely. Yeah, Warden just nails it. it. Yeah, it could be an upsetting moment. Like, it, I don't know. It's usually a no-no to just kill someone off, a beloved character off in your comedy. It's, it might just, you know, sour the tone completely. But no, it's so funny. It, it just really works. Yeah, so 10 minutes into the movie, the kindly older brother, Luke Fuchs, is dead. The evil brother Roy has killed him. And so the whole plot of the rest of the movie is based around we have to hide the body of Luke Fuchs. No one can know he's knows he's no one can know he died because the minute he dies, the car, the, 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 the car lot dealership passes to his heir, next heir, who's his brother. So this is why the brother killed or him. Or is it? Or is it? Yeah, we have a subplot coming later. There's, there's a daughter in the mix that will come into this. But 10 minutes into the movie, we've killed the kindly old man. And so it's literally like Weekend at Bernie's. We're just going to hide the body and no one will know he's dead. Yeah, and it is sort of that prototype because you do get like, you know, a sort of propped up, uh, you know, Luke Fuchs corpse a few times. And yeah, you do get that Bernie's vibe of like, oh, yeah, he's hiding behind that mustache and, uh, and uh, he's got the coins taped to his eyelids and stuff. And it, it just looks so silly. <laughs> 
So what they do is they bury Luke Fuchs, uh, Kurt Russell and his little buddies, bury him in a pit on the car lot inside his Edsel, and they just don't tell anybody. So we're going to act like Luke just drove off on a trip to Florida, to Miami or whatever, and they will never admit that he's dead. So <laughs> it's a good bit of laughs for a good 30 minutes of the movie. But we do have to talk about two things here right at the start that we forgot to mention it, Johnny, that... Rudy has a subplot in this movie. He's not just a used car salesman. He has bigger aspirations in life. Now, what would those be? Absolutely. Well, you know, just as, uh, you know, uh, some use uh, their their tactics as a used car salesman to uh, have success on Survivor. Well, you know, he is a natural salesman, a natural born liar, and he's got the looks. So, of course, what is he going to do? He wants to go into politics. And he is basically he has been you know, uh, told that he can buy himself into politics. He's just a shoe in to uh, get elected uh, for, for local government. Uh, and specifically, though, he doesn't just want to be a politician. He wants to be a dirty politician. I mean, that's the show. That's <laughs> what you get into the business for is once you are a politician, it's just all, your whole job is taking bribes and he can't wait. So, yeah, he's trying to raise this. What is it? Forty thousand dollars uh to uh to, to give to dub taylor uh in a in a little part uh, uh to uh yeah become a uh, corrupt local politician and then you know it's easy breezy from then on out yeah so that's the only reason rudy russo kurt russell that's the only reason he sells cars in this movie he's trying to become a corrupt politician and he knows with his looks and his ethics he'll get real far so that's his only motivation in this movie is become a, a dirty senator and when luke dies when his older mentor dies it's a problem, not so much that he liked Luke, like he did like Luke, but Luke was going to give him the money to open his Senate bid. So Rudy's kind of screwed now. He has no money, and so now he has to run this car lot by himself, and he's in trouble because he really need, needs to get onto this uh, Senate payroll somehow. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, it becomes it, – you know, there really are so many subplots in this movie. I mean it would be enough to just like, oh, we have to save the, the, the car lot. We have to beat the evil brother across the street. But no, it's also, oh, we got to raise the money for, for my Senate bid. And then, of course, there's, there's still more to come, folks. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're not even to the really big th uh, the really big set pieces of this movie yet. Okay, so – there's one scene I have to set, talk about here. Just It's not that integral to the plot, but it always makes me laugh if you know the history behind it. You know the parrot line that I'm talking about? Uh, I believe so. Remind me. Okay, so so Kurt Russell and his buddy uh, Jeff, who is played by, what's the actor's name, Garrett? Oh, Garrett Graham. The great Garrett Graham. I will have much to say about Garrett Graham. I adore him. Okay, yeah, so Kurt Russell and Garrett Graham are the two main salesmen at New Deal. The older brother comes over, Roy, to talk about, well, I saw my brother Luke had a heart attack last night, so I guess this car lot belongs to me now. And they're like, well, no, he, they're just lying. They're like, no, he drove away, he's fine. He's, he's in Miami Beach, you'll just never find him. So this whole conversation is really funny that they didn't give Garrett Graham any lines. So he's just standing there, and he was frustrated the fact that he didn't have any lines. So if you watch the scene, every line Kurt Russell says, Garrett Graham just repeats it. He repeats the same line. And apparently Jack Warden got really frustrated with that, that ad-libbing, because it's not in the script. And he just turns to Garrett Graham, and he says, what are you, a fucking parrot? <laughs> That's pretty great. And it's left in the movie, yeah. I have to say... 
I, you know, Kurt Russell, you're right. Like, you know, top of his game. He is so good. It's a star making performance for a guy who has been building towards this, you know, since he was a kid. But I do think that maybe the MVP in this movie is Garrett Graham. Mm-hmm. But like th- this poor guy, he is so, so funny in this movie. And I assume he didn't he just didn't have a better comedy career because this movie bombed. But, you know, he is a cult figure, certainly. Uh, you know, uh, he's beef in Phantom of the Paradise, uh, the Brian De Palma film. Uh, he is Bud the Chud in Chud 2. Uh, he's in things like Child's Play 2. And, you know, this guy worked a long time. He's been retired now for 15 years or more. But he is so funny in this movie. And I, I think we should now drop in this little nugget because it's going to pay off more than once uh, that uh, his character, Jeff, is very superstitious. Uh, uh, pretty important little side note is that uh, he is, uh, uh, you know, he, if he uh, is about to walk under a ladder, he, he quickly uh, jumps out of the way. Uh, this guy just thinks that bad luck is coming his way at all times, and he will do anything to prevent it from happening. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I have seen other people make that same argument that as good as Kurt Russell is in this movie, Garrett Graham kind of steals a lot of the scenes from Kurt Russell. And I, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, he has a lot of, like, funny gags. Like, Kurt is the charismatic, handsome guy. And, like, you know, he's inherently likable and funny. But I think that most of the jokes go to Garrett Graham. Uh, and, you know, he, he gets to be the star of all of these commercials that we're going to be talking about shortly. Uh, and then uh, also has one of the, to this day, one of the best stunts I have ever seen in movie history. Uh, it, it's terrifying to see. Uh, I'm so happy you brought that up because I have that in my notes circled like a hundred times. We have to talk about at least two of the stunts in this movie. That one is in particular, but there's another one as well. This Uh movie has some really scary looking stunts. Yeah, it. Uh, I you get the sense that no one was really keeping close eyes on this movie, and that they were uh, doing some stuff that would not fly today. You know, uh, at one point, someone is firing a shotgun at uh, at you know cars on a lot, and uh, that those aren't uh, little controlled explosions and stuff. No, no, they were just had live ammunition and were firing shotguns at cars and uh, such like that. You know, there, there's some big practical explosions. Uh, yeah, I I think that this was a uh, a pretty dangerous film. To to be a part of and yeah uh garrett graham towards the end of this film in an effortless uh little stunt he uh almost gets hit by a car and every time i see it i think oh ah that that came even closer than i remembered it coming oh yeah and i, I remember on the dvd commentary they talk about that too that they can't even watch that scene that stunt goes comes so close to being a huge disaster they actually can't even watch it it's very dangerous looking yeah, it's so effective. It just blows my mind. It would be the easy thing to fake now. But back then, it was like, oh, no, just drive straight on towards him and swerve at just the right moment. And uh, uh, half second too late, and uh, this movie would have been dedicated to Garrett Graham <laughs> if it got released at all. Okay, so, yeah, we'll get back to Garrett Graham. He has a lot to do in the story. He's the main salesman for New Deal. He's the one doing the grunt work as Kurt Russell's kind of doing this, being the star of the movie. But we'll get back to Garrett Graham. Just remember, for now, he is t- petrified of everything. He is superstitious as all hell. And his number one superstition, Johnny, which color car does he not like? Garrett Graham does not like the color red. Je- Jeff is terrified of the color red and will never drive a red car if he sees one he just sees it as this ominous omen of bad things to come uh if he sees someone in a red dress they are not to be trusted but yes the color red is uh bad juju for uh jeff (laughs) okay 
Now, here we go through the next 30 minutes of this movie, which I will spoil a little bit for you, is just back and forth commercials by the two competing car lots trying to discredit the other one or one-up the other one. And this has got to be one of the funniest stretches of any comedy in the 80s. Like, there's so many big moments we're about to go right through here. Yeah, well, and of course, commercial time on television is expensive. So you got to hire some um, scrupulous guys who, you know, some tech guys who will just tap into the feed and you put a little pirate commercial in. Like, uh, uh, what, what, there was a uh, famous uh, Max Headroom thing that, yeah. uh, the, that MTV got tapped into, you know, uh, what, in the late 80s or something? Yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, and, and these two guys, played by Michael McKean and. Uh, 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 David Lander uh, of uh, Laverne and Shirley, Lenny and Squiggy themselves uh, teamed again, but, uh, you know, in completely different roles. And, yeah, they are in charged with uh, uh, sort of getting them on the air uh, illegally. <laughs> yeah, but that's something I, I again, I said at the top of this podcast that this movie has a lot of heavy hitters in it. And I'm really it's so shocking it did not become a big hit. We have Lenny and Squiggy in it at the peak of their career, too. Like, that was – they were a big deal. I don't think people nowadays they, would realize – They were huge. Yeah, people wouldn't realize what a big hit Laverne and Shirley was, and Lenny and Squiggy were the breakout stars of that show. Here we have them in this movie basically playing Lenny and Squiggy, and they're like the hired guns that Kurt Russell brings in to uh, tap into these pirated uh, commercials that he can take over the airwaves and put his commercials on. Yeah, and uh, McKean and Lander, I guess they were hired for Laverne and Shirley as a duo. They were a de facto comedy duo uh, prior to that show, and legendarily, they were absolutely hilarious. And uh, everyone will say, Michael McKean included, that David Lander was the funny one, but unfortunately, he just got associated with Squiggy mm -hmm. and, um, and, and never really recovered from that, which is uh, too bad because supposedly they were great and they're very funny in this, especially David Lander, I would say. He has a little more to do. And yeah, they, they, uh, th their big plan is to like, okay, we pick these big events where lots of people are watching television at this specific time. So they tap into a football game. Later, they tap into a presidential address. And uh, yeah, it suddenly, uh, click, you know, everyone who is watching television is watching uh, what, uh, you know, w watching their commercial. Yeah, it's, uh, okay. Now, we should point out what an incredibly illegal thing this is. This is like the number one thing the FCC does not allow you to do, tap into somebody else's network broadcast and air your thing instead. So right off the bat, Rudy is breaking laws left and right here by doing this. But this is the way he operates. Anything for a sale, anything for a business. And this is the – anything for a sale, anything for his, for his business. And this first commercial is really funny. The, better, the second and third one will be funnier. But this first one is amazing where they tap into the live broadcast during a college football game and put on a commercial for New Deal used cars. But it goes horribly wrong. Or horribly right, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we have a uh, lovely young actress who is the eye candy for this commercial in this uh, beautiful blue dress. And, uh, you know, Jeff is kind of spinning his wheels. He's trying to, you know, get out his message as best as he can. And uh, things are going wrong at one point. Her, uh, her uh, well, what happens exactly? Her dress gets caught on the hood. Is that it? And then... And, and then Jeff, you know, being ever the good salesman says, well, let's take a look under the hood. He pops that thing open and wouldn't you know it, the dress just comes flying off. And, uh, you know, she, she, she's, she's not wearing much underneath it. But, hey, we're on live television, people. And, uh, yeah, you, you get, you know, the beautiful reaction shots of all the people watching. My favorite being this 
family of seemingly like eight kids and, and their parents and this little blonde kid who always reminded me a bit of Tanner from Bad News Bears <laughs> just points to the screen and says, hey, look, bear tits. <laughs> just hilarious. Didn't see that on the uh, network TV cut as a kid. Yeah, I, I cannot get across how few movies had these kinds of scenes back then. This this would have been an incredibly raunchy scene for a movie like this in 1980. They weren't quite doing stuff like that. We weren't quite up to Porky's and stuff like that. So Zemeckis Yeah, we're, had, we're like just post-Animal House, but things haven't gotten like bad yet with things like Porky's or Losing It or, or you know, My Tutor, you know. Yeah, so this live commercial, the New Deal used cars commercial that they're pirating the network airwaves during the football game goes horribly wrong. First off where Jeff sees that the car he's trying to sell is actually red, which I forgot about yeah. that. It's under the lights. He didn't notice it was red. Now he notices it's red. So on live TV in front of millions of people, he says, what the fuck is this Rudy, which is FCC violation number one. <laughs> and then the second one is when the models bare breasts are exposed and everyone in the world sees this commercial of nudity on, on live TV. Yes, and I love that Kurt and everyone, they're, they're telling him, no, it's a maroon car. It's maroon. And, and as soon as the lights shine on it, they all say, oh, God damn, it's a red car. Oh, no. Yeah. It... <laughs> now, okay, for people who may, have, may not be familiar with the trivia behind this movie, this scene is kind of infamous because in the commercial, every time Rudy and Jeff pirate these network broadcasts to go on the air, they have to disguise themselves because this is obviously illegal. They have to have plausible deniability later. So... In this scene, they're wearing these googly eye, funny nose glasses, so nobody can recognize them. But John, where you're going? Yeah, that was not the original uh, prop they were supposed to wear, is it? Uh, no, I guess originally, and I only learned this last night, is uh, they had these. Um, uh, uh, they, I, I guess, for a lack of a better term, they're like those like Groucho glasses, or with the yeah the googly eyes. But uh, the noses were uh, phalluses, and uh, I guess uh, someone at the studio said, uh, 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 no, that is too much. You are you're going too far with this." So they had to reshoot it. Although uh, I, th I think Zemeckis on the commentary track points out that Kurt Russell is still holding a pair of the uh, of the penis glasses in one shot, so so you can sort of catch a glimpse of what it might have been. Yeah. That's the kind of movie we're talking about here, where the studio has to rush down there at the last minute. Do not put on the dick nose glasses, please. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, this commercial is fantastic. It just goes horribly wrong. The model's breasts accidentally get exposed on live TV because her dress gets caught. <laughs> Kurt Russell, of course, sees this as a prime opportunity and leans into the frame and says, hey, come on down to New, New Deal Used Cars. Come on down and squeeze on us as he's focusing on the breasts. So... <laughs> Although, like you said, all the, the most of the humor in this in is, is in the reaction shots of the people at home, especially the little kids. There's like a little seven, eight, nine-year-olds, three, three kids sitting there, and like the hushed silence of reverence that falls over them when they see bare breasts on TV. I just love that reaction. Oh, yeah. I mean, being a, a children of the 80s, you and I, yeah, you, you know that uh, we would live for moments like that. You know, the, those those brief accidental things that were unexpected. You, know, you never had a tape in the v VCR ready to go. But uh, yes, uh, the, the, the family is great. Uh, I also want to point out, uh, you know, Zemeckis being uh, uh, coming a bit out of the uh, the Roger Corman camp. Uh, there's a little Dick Miller cameo there who uh, would work with you know, Joe Dante and almost everything he ever did and is a, a Roger Corman stalwart. He's, he is the man uh, who is making love to his wife while the football game is on and then gets a little eyeful while, uh, you know, when the commercial hits on. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's a it's a great bit. 
I love in particular, you know, like you said, you pointed out the little kid saying, hey, look, bare tits, which is one of the funniest lines in the movie. That kid's dad is just as funny because he's so transfixed by these this uh, idea of breasts on TV that when Kurt Russell says, come on down to New Deal used cars, you can see the dad mouthing it like he's been hypnotized. New Deal used cars. <laughs> and again, this commercial is such a smash hit that the next day on the lot, they're just, you know, it's just a, a influx of people overrunning. They have so many customers they don't know what to do with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, the, yeah, they really have been hypnotized into like, oh, honey, I guess we do need a new car. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a fantastic real, like, you know, kickoff to, uh, to the anarchy to come. <laughs> okay, so here we go. This might be my favorite scene in the movie. The, bear, the very first day of the lot, on the lot after the big commercial, when they, they have so many customers they don't know what to do with because of the bare tits commercial. And so Kurt Russell is pulling out every tactic he has to try to sell cars to people. This is where he's changing yes, his all of his accents. Yeah, the yeah. accent, changing the accent. Uh, I, I particularly like the running joke where every time there's a woman in the car, he will say that her hair and her eyes matches something in the car. Like, oh, your your hair matches the interior. Oh, your eyes, they match the leather. And then the last lady, he just like, your black hair. It, did I ever tell you your hair matches the tires? It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. And then, of course, here, uh, you know, we see some of the unscrupulous tactics of the, of the rest of the team. And, uh, yeah, Garrett Graham is uh, sort of working over. I, I believe it is the fa the family who was, uh, you know, the Bear Tits family. And, uh, you know, a, a little extra incentive to uh, to get their sympathies. You know, they're about to take a test drive. And uh, Garrett takes a, a big, good-sized rock, puts it right under the wheel. And uh, then, like, you know, snaps his finger and says, uh, yeah, you know, oh, hey, Toby, to Toby, un under the car. Toby, you know, the little adorable Basset hound crawls right – or Basset Beagle. He's a beagle. Looks he's like a beagle. beagle. Yeah. I guess he's a beagle. Yeah. He uh, crawls under the car and uh, uh, lies there, plays dead, and then, you know, the, the, the father takes off. Thump rolls over the rock and then, oh, Garrett Graham, oh, you killed my dog. You killed. Oh, God. It's such a great moment. The dog is heavily sedated, obviously. He's just drooping in his arms. It's so funny. Uh, Garrett Graham just kills the scene. Yeah, this is the darkest joke in the movie. And I, I cannot imagine anybody could get through this without laughing. That they, Garrett Graham fakes the death of a little dog to sell a car. He tricks the customer into thinking he, he ran over their cute little beagle and and the beagle is very well trained i love the beagle he's so cute because he's so well trained it, it's a huge no-no to ever actually kill a dog in a movie but if you pretend to it could be comedy gold as we now know yes if you pretend and you sell the car immediately afterwards it's a successful sale so like on in the new deal used car world this is a perfectly legit tactic to get them to buy a car pretend that they ran over your dog <laughs> yes, and and it works, and the family drives off this big station wagon with full of kids, and uh, one of my favorite shots in the film, the the car just drives off the lot, hits a bump, and two of the kids just fall out of the back of the car, just, just into the street. I and they look like kids. I, it didn't look like two stuntmen. Uh, it's it's very impressive. They just fall in a big mud mud puddle. Remember how I said earlier, there's a couple stunts in this movie that look especially dangerous to me. That's another one I wanted to add because, like Johnny said, this car drives over a bump, the back tailgate falls open, and two kids fall out headfirst onto the ground. I don't think those are stuntmen. I think those are just kids they dumped onto their heads. 
I think it is too. I mean, they're wearing football helmets. We should say they, they, that 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 helps uh, protect them. I guess you know we, we've established that these are uh, football fans. Uh, but yeah, it does look uh, pretty real. It just looks like uh, you know hit that bump and then this thing's gonna fly open and roll right out. And uh, hey, I don't think anyone got hurt. I guess we're fine. <laughs> yeah, no. As my dad would say, no blood, no foul. So it's it's clean. <laughs> so so. Uh, I have to talk about the Toby scene one more thing that you mentioned it earlier. So Toby, the little dog, he's like kind of steals a couple scenes in this movie, this cutest little beagle. He has to pretend he's been run over by a car so they can sell the car to people. So there's a scene where Garrett Graham picks up Toby and Toby is just limp. Like he's so he looks so out of it and his tongue is hanging out. And I'm like, how do you train a dog to do that? That is the most amazing trick I've ever learned or I've ever seen. And you just spoiled the fun for me because I just read that as well. That wasn't a trick at all. At all, they just drugged him. Yeah, uh, it, it it looks way too good to be a natural trick. You know, I, I guess yeah, years ago Letterman did feature a really good play dead dog on stupid pet tricks, but it, it's rare. Like that whole play dead trick, it never. You know, it, it, they're just lying down. No, this dog looks dead. He looks limp in his arms. His his tongue is lying out of his mouth. It, it's just hysterical. But he's absolutely fine, we have to point out. Toby he's fine. fine. Yeah. He, he comes back throughout the rest of the film. He is there at the end credits, alive and well, people. Okay, so we're continuing with the back and forth between these two used car lots, and they've had the, the bare breast commercial, and they got all the customers over at New Deal. So now Roy L. across the street has to counter, and the way he counters is with some good old-fashioned American fun, which is like a good, clean carnival. But... This is going to backfire on him as well because New Deal is going to one-up him as well, aren't they? Yes. Uh, th- this is, I guess, the uh, the sort of uh, disco party on the on the car hoods, right? Uh, yes. We suddenly have go-go dancers. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, any, anyone over at, uh, you know, uh, Royal Fuchs it's, uh, is going to see this uh, fun party going on. I just noticed, that after seeing this movie, I don't know how many times, that one of the women on the car, I think the one – Right next to Kurt Russell is uh, Betty Thomas, uh, who would go on to uh, be a, uh, a popular director of what, the Brady Bunch movie, uh, Private Parts, uh, uh, and and others. Uh, I, I know she she has an illustrious career, but uh, yeah, that was a, a fun little bit. But yeah, it's uh, it's just a great uh, time stamp of when this movie takes place. You know, that this perfect little disco music going on. Wait, wait, she's the stripper? She's the one right next to Kurt Russell? Yeah, she's the one next to Kurt Russell. Uh, she she was also in, like, Troop Beverly Hills and... Uh, yeah, she was an uh, actress yeah, yeah. first. Yeah, she was an actress first, but she uh, she sort of transitioned to directing. Okay. Yeah, so if you haven't seen this movie, Royale is having a family fun carnival on his side of the street. And once he has all the media there and all these customers, all the lights turn on across the street on Kurt Russell's. And he basically has what could be best described as a disco sex party across the street so the stripper music starts up we got strippers on top of cars rudy's like come on over across the street folks all the real fun's over here and he just starts luring all the customers over so roy l is furious because he gets one-upped every time kurt russell will always one-up him so so roy l goes on the news goes on live tv and says look at that sex across the street nudity look at those charlatans over there this is the lowest form of used car sales so he kind of blows up their spot because all of a sudden people start protesting New Deal, saying you guys are immoral. And so Kurt Russell gets mad. And when Kurt Russell gets mad, he'll one up the stakes every time. And this is where we get the big one. This is the presidential debates uh, commercial. Yes. 
Yes, they, uh, they, 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 <laughs> with, uh, one of my favorite lines is, uh, you're fucking with the president of the United States. And Kurt responds, he fucks with us, doesn't he? I'm, yeah, I, that, that's a, uh, a little, uh, uh, insight to, uh, uh, the politics at the time. This is, uh, uh, right before, uh, months before, uh, Carter is, uh, defeated by, uh, Reagan. Okay. Yeah. I will try to set this one up for people who have maybe never seen it. This is the scene that most people talk about when they talk about this movie. So. So New Deal used cars is going to pirate the FCC airwaves again, and they're going to break in during the president's speech, during Jimmy Carter's speech. And it's a really fun commercial because basically the commercial is going to be them sabotaging all of Roy L's cars across the street. They're going to blow stuff up. But in between this, there's a subplot here where Luke, the nice brother at the start of the movie, has a daughter that they, did, they didn't really know about. Her name is Barbara Fuchs, played by Deborah Harmon. I always want to say Foreman, not Harmon. It's Harmon. Uh, I know. It's tempting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk about Deborah Harmon in a second. You may know her. She was the mom in Just the Ten of Us. She's in a couple other things. She's in Bachelor Party. But she becomes... Of course. Yeah, I mostly know her from Bachelor Party. I forgot the, about Just the Ten of Us. Yeah, she's a big deal because she's the only heir to Luke Fuchs. So the car lot should go to her when her father dies. But she doesn't know her father is dead yet. She's just showing up to reunite with him. So we're going to have a lot of comedy here where kurt russell has to kind of sway her uh seduce her make her not think about her father while they pull off this presidential speech there's a couple plots going on at once here yeah and she's just gotten out of a cult right isn't that the implication <laughs> that she, she's she's been involved with this cult for 10 years and she's finally uh you know been demystified from it and she's coming home to dad and she's really really looking forward to reuniting with her father and i will say in a movie that like i just you relish in all of the bad behavior the one little stain on the film, I feel, is that it is kind of sad that they instantly start lying to her about her father still being alive. And like, you know, they, they kind of treat her like the enemy, even though, you know, she's sort of destined to align with them before long. Yeah, it's and I was reading some of the contemporary reviews of this movie, and that's something they point out that the movie is a little mean spirited. And it's kind of dark for its own good. And this has got to be like Luke dying at the start is dark enough. But lying to his daughter and making her pretend her dad is still alive and fake seducing her, it is a little mean spirited. I can see where that argument comes up. Yeah, it's it's the muddiest part of the whole movie that like I, I, I there was probably a way around it. So it so it didn't. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, how every romantic comedy needs some, like, act of mild betrayal so that, you know, uh, that person can redeem themselves later. I, I just wish that there was a way to kind of get her on their side faster without it being this manipulation thing, even though it does lead to some very funny moments, uh, whereas, you know, uh, Rudy has to take her out to dinner uh, and, you know, uh, sort of distract her so she doesn't see the commercial that they're about to play with the, uh, you know, in the midst of this uh, presidential address uh which i i just think it's so funny that you know i guess it's a different time where they he tries he might it's just so hard to get away from a television with jimmy carter on it you know they're in the middle of a restaurant and uh yeah uh, someone says uh oh i didn't know the president that president carter was going to be on tv tonight and it's like yeah can you imagine anyone just like oh everyone be quiet let's let's listen to our presidential address uh, okay i mean maybe we're coming off a, a few years of uh you know I, I don't know a certain stigma around that but uh yeah it, it's just a very funny sequence and he 
drags her out of the restaurant. He uh, he, he takes her uh, on the street, and then, oh, wouldn't you know, it's a television store. Oh, no, it's on the television as well. And and uh, ultimately, to distract her from the commercial, he has to plant a, a big old kiss on her, which just has to last a, a few minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he has to kiss her for literally like three minutes, I think. Yeah. Uh, and this is all for the commercial that uh, n- now uh, uh, Jeff is sort of in a uh, uh, what, what, what would you call it? It's, it's not quite a Colonel Sanders, but it's a uh, he's got the big mustache and the and the Van Dyke and, and a big hat. And he's this is where he's at uh, Royals lot with a shotgun and uh, just saying like, oh, we we uh, we blow high prices out of the water. Twenty nine hundred dollars. That's too fucking high. And then he he'll shoot the windshield a few times. It's just glorious. Yeah. Anybody who quotes this movie, this is the scene they tend to quote the presidential speech. It's okay. So the actual description is Jeff is dressed up like a cowboy. He's got like a Sam Elliott mustache, big droopy mustache. Yeah, that's a better uh, app description. And he says, I'm Marshall Lucky and I'm going to show you the solution to inflation. And he's good. Again, this is on live TV. Every single person in the country is watching this because, as uh, Johnny said, it's kind of a childlike time when it's like, oh, look, the president's on TV. What's he have to say? Like, cause, like it's a, a different time when you don't hear from the president all the time. So it's like, oh, cool. So they cut into that presidential broadcast. And Marshall Lucky goes over to Roy L.'s car lot, and he just starts blowing the crap out of his inventory with a shotgun. He's like, this is our solution to inflation. We just blow the living shit out of high prices. <laughs> and it's and so funny. It's so satisfying to to actually – I mean, you know, I know it's dangerous, and uh, hey, we are at a moment in time when uh, the thought of live ammo on a set is, uh, you know, maybe a little uh, dubious. But it's still so much fun to watch these cars actually get shot up. And, you know, have it look like how it looks. And then, of course, it, it all leads to this this big explosion. You know, they've, they've uh, oh, oh, I, I for, also forgot that it's he's not just shooting the cars. At a certain point, uh, Frank McRae, the uh, the mechanic, jumps up in a in a costume. And I guess they've timed it out where it's like, OK, real bullet, real bullet, real bullet, squib, blank, real bullet, real bullet. And yes, he actually shoots Frank McRae in the chest uh, with, I guess, a squib, uh, you know, a blank and a squib and his chest explodes. In a, in, a, in a puddle of blood and uh, uh, you know for a, a hot second you might say like is he okay did he just shoot oh no no he's fine it's all part of the plan but it, it's, it's a great little gag nonetheless yeah and again I cannot say enough this should always be included as one of the funniest scenes of any comedy in the 80s and it never is like you hear people talk about Ghostbusters Fish Called Wanda Airplane Naked Gun like everyone knows the big stalwarts no one talks about this scene, which absolutely should be up there of just <laughs> Jeff turning to Roy L's beloved Mercedes Benz and saying, what, a Mercedes for $24,000? That's too fucking high! And just blows the shit out of this car and it explodes on live TV. It's just such a great shot. And the the shot of the explosion is great, but also Kurt Russell's reaction shot, still locked lips in a kiss, and then his eyes that just like explode out of his head when he sees the explosion but still having to continue the distraction of uh you know uh shoving his thumb down her throat yeah yeah okay we're gonna try to finish up this movie because we're about halfway through the movie i'm gonna skip over most of the romantic stuff because it's not really that important all you have to know i think that we can yeah yeah all you have to know is that Luke Fuchs' daughter is in the picture. She's going to inherit the car lot, but we're going to have some drama here first. So Roy L. is furious that the New Deal guys blew up his car lot on live TV, blew up his Mercedes. 
he comes up and he's basically going to kick the shit out of Jeff, beat him up. But first we have a scene that always makes me laugh where the FBI shows up to talk about that. The fact that they broke into the president's debate or uh, speech last night. And I love Jeff's comment. This is just a little throwaway joke that always makes me laugh where Jeff says, I don't know. I think it was the Iranian kids. <laughs> the Iranian kids were they were uh, it was some Iranian students trying to discredit the the American way of living. So I don't know. They had towels on their heads. They came over. So if you think about this in 1980 when the Ayatollah and the uh, hostage situation was a big deal, this is a very topical joke that would have got a big laugh at the time. Absolutely yes. Now it might raise an eyebrow or two, but at the time, you know, it, it was a, a big topical thing, and you know, we were, uh, I guess, uh, uh, more or less at war. But yes, it, uh, uh, yes. For, first the Iranians, and uh, and then just a few short late years later, with Back to the Future, it was suddenly the Libyans. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Zemeckis had a little trouble with the Middle East maybe early on in his career, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, we we we've, uh, can brush past all of that. As they say, when you're making a comedy omelet, you're going to break some eggs. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So anyway, here comes the fight where Royale comes over and basically just beats the ever-loving crap out of Jeff. And there's another stunt in this scene, too, and I, can't, I have to keep bringing this up, how dangerous this movie looks, where Royale is driving his car and tries to knock Jeff over, and Jeff literally, like, gets knocked off a porch onto the roof, onto the, the hood of the car. That looks really dangerous, and I don't think that's a stuntman either. No, I, it does look like him. You, you know, uh, throughout this fight, uh, I think it is mostly Garrett Graham. And then I will say Jack Warden's body double is pretty good. Like it's real seamless when you go from uh, Warden to whoever is wearing that uh, wig and, you know, uh, uh, leisure suit. Uh, but, yeah, it's a great fight. It's it's uh, one of those that like, oh, no, this is an actual violent act. This isn't just a comedy fight where, you know, there you know, people getting bonked on the head. No, it's just a good old brawl. And uh, it's it's an effective scene, and uh, yeah, it, it it it's a reminder that oh yeah, Roy Roy L. Fuchs not a good guy. He uh, he's he's more than just a, a you know a lighthearted villain. You know he he's a bastard. We have to, and then in the middle of this fight, uh, this is when uh, Roy takes a look at the, this photograph on uh, on Luke's desk and notices a difference between what's in the photo and what's on the lot now, and he notices ah. They filled in the pit. Yes, they buried Luke in the in his car in the pit, and now it, it's all filled. So suddenly he he's got it. He knows that he's going to uh, he, he knows where the body is, and he is going to come there the next day. You know, probably shouldn't have waited, but he's going to come the next day to expose it. Yeah. So here's the final plot twist, really, in the movie that Roy L is over there beating up Jeff. Uh, although I have to say, Jack Warden was a legitimately tough guy in real life. Have you read about his history? Somewhat. I know, uh, I, yeah, I'm trying to think on some of the uh, Hal Ashby things that, like, yeah, I, I read that uh, he, he did serve in, was it Korea? must have been? World War II. He was in World War, World War II. Oh, he, it was as early as World War II. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, a lot of details, but, you know, I mean, anyone who uh, made it out through that uh, uh, must have had some, uh, you know, some grit to them. Yeah, well, it's even more so than that. He was in World War II. He was a paratrooper. He came out of service, and he was a boxer. And he was a nightclub bouncer. So, like, Jack Warden was somebody you would not want to mess with in real life. So when you see the scene where he's beating up Jeff, like, Jack Warden was a legit tough guy. That I wouldn't want to fight him. Well, he's built like a brick shithouse. He is. He, he really, uh, he's, he's really got some heft to him. Yeah. 
Okay, so Royale is over there beating up he, beating up Jeff. He figures out that they buried his dead brother in the pit. He's like, aha. So from here on out, they know that Luke is dead. And so basically from here on out, it's just some subterfuge so the New Deal guys don't get in trouble that nobody thinks they killed Luke. So we have to kill Luke again. <laughs> so we're going to kill the dead brother again tomorrow on live TV with hundreds of witnesses. And here's another one of the fun scenes in this movie. Yeah, so because uh, Roy shows up and says, you know, uh, hey, we we know he's we we know he's dead. Like, like produce him. And I just love Kurt in this scene because of, they've been planning this all night. And he said, "What are you talking about? He was just here. I, I he just went to have breakfast or something. Or I just had breakfast with him. One of the two. Uh, yeah, he should be around any minute. And uh, where is he? He is uh back in his Etzel in his car that Frank McRae is pouring gasoline all over. And uh, he is about to uh, just sort of let him go and let him fly and and hope that he uh crashes into something uh big and you know heavy and flammable uh to to go up like a like a light you know like a firework and uh boy does he it's uh it's just fantastic the sight again i i, I can't get enough of dead jack warden in this movie but the sight of him sort of bobbing up and down in the car seat while, as he is going to his final fate of uh, the big electrical box uh, by, at the uh, dealership across the street is just so funny. It just makes me cackle every time I see it. Yeah, I was going to say, in Weekend at Bernie's, they only kill Bernie once. In Used Cars, <laughs> they kill Jack Warden twice. <laughs> so yeah. we even up the stakes. So, yeah, this is a fantastic scene where we take the dead body of Jack Warden, put him in a car, <laughs> cover him in gasoline, drive him into an electrical transformer, and blow him up. So it's a wonderfully dark moment. And we were talking about dangerous stunts. I had never noticed this until I listened to the commentary track, and they point out that – Frank McRae is almost hit by this car. Like when, you know, he's he, it, the wheels are spinning, it's up on the blocks, and he's supposed to push it off, and it's just going to go forward. When he does that, at first the car kind of goes backwards first, and it almost nails him. And you could see it just for a split second. I had never noticed that before, and now I'll never watch it again and not see it. it it's really uh, something. Yeah, I'm glad you're talking about Frank McRae. Now, you and I know who Frank McRae is. But I mentioned at the start of the movie, there's a lot of heavy hitters in this movie who are a big deal in other movies. Explain who Frank McRae is and why people may know him. Well, let's see. Frank McRae uh, is sort of a, uh, a, a famous guy for – I think he really got shoehorned into uh, uh, playing uh, police chiefs mm -hmm. a lot. Like the he almost the stereotypical screaming uh, police chief, which in too many films to count at this point. Uh, uh, last Action Hero, I remember. He's, he's almost parodying himself in that. Mm -hmm. um, now – I want to say he's in Raging Bull, right? Is this the one I'm thinking of? I'm trying to think of his earlier, more dramatic work. He has a part. Oh God, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm off. I, as a kid, I always knew him from Batteries Not Included, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I don't know if that's his uh, his his uh, uh, most noteworthy role. But yeah, he was just one of those guys that popped up everywhere. I think he just passed away a couple years ago. Uh, is there anything in particular that you uh, have fond memories of? Well, I was thinking of Last Action Hero because I know that's like the culmination of him being in other movies where he's just the loud, screaming black police chief. And you just know him. You'd know him if you if you saw a picture. But it's a big deal seeing him in this movie because, oh, oh, it's that guy. So, again, there's a lot of big heavy hitters in this movie that were famous for other stuff. That's the, just the main thing I wanted to point out. 
Yes, uh, I, I will also point out uh, he was uh, memorable in uh, 1941, which mm-hmm. uh, Robert Zemeckis wrote. Uh, so maybe that was where that connection was made. Uh, 48 hours. Uh, and yeah, for some reason, I don't know why I was making the Raging Bull connection. I, I, I don't know who I'm thinking of there. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he did uh, have a pretty uh, a solid career popping up uh, for uh, decades. And then, uh, yeah, he only just passed away this past April. It's uh, it's still fresh. But uh, rest in peace, Frank McRae. Yeah, he's great in this. We talked about Garrett Graham, but I like Frank McRae in it just as much. So this, all three of the, the New Deal guys are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just a great crew. Okay, so here we go. We're going to get to the last part of the movie. So with Luke Fuchs dead, now everyone knows he's dead. We have witnesses. We saw him blow up. And, uh, and uh, the ownership of New Deal used cars now passes down to Barbara, his daughter. Royale thinks he gets it at first, but Rudy's like, uh, no, he's got a daughter. I'm sleeping with her right now, so ha-ha. So anyway, Barbara is going to run the company now. Royale is pissed because he didn't even know Barbara existed. I don't know how he didn't know that, but he didn't know. But from here on out, Barbara is furious that all the New Deal guys lied to her about her dad's death. So she fires all the the New Deal salesmen and tries to run the business by herself. And this is what's going to lead into the end part of the movie where – She's going to screw up. Roy L is going to catch her and she's going to go on trial for uh, fraud, basically. Yes. And yeah, so they're all unemployed. And, you know, Kurt Russell is still trying to raise his money to buy himself into politics. There's a great moment where he's selling his possessions and he's doing the hard sell with, uh, you know, an 11 year old kid to sell him a bike. And he said, ah, ninth grader was looking at this just the other day. It's just a, a great line. It's it, get, it makes me laugh every time. But, yeah, uh, they're all uh, in this. Uh, position of uh, needing money and then meanwhile she is trying to run the dealership herself by making her own commercial now this is the most dubious part but the, the, the thing that just doesn't hold water in this movie that i'll never understand uh roy fuchs uh it it, it it's brought to his attention uh, i i guess is it by uh, joe flaherty his little underling or, or or his other underling uh but they they're re they re-edit her commercial she sort of like swallows a word or something and so they slip in instead of um uh, I forget what word they replace. Yeah, I'll do this. Uh, I got this. I wrote it oh, all yeah, down go, here. Go okay, ahead. so Barbara, this is Deborah Harmon, not Foreman. <laughs> Deborah Harmon is trying to run her own commercials, and she has a speech here where she says, we have a lot of style, a, a huge style of cars to choose from. And basically, she sends that commercial to Channel 7, but Roy L. is so rich, he owns Channel 7. Like, he basically can bribe them to do things. He says, take her commercial and splice in a different word instead. So instead of her saying they have a style of cars, they change it to a mile of cars. And the minute the lawyers see this, they're like, is she advertising? They literally have a mile of cars on their lot that Roy L.'s lawyer says, bingo, right there. That's blatant false advertising. False advertising. Yeah, yeah. we can get her yanked from the TV on an FCC violation tomorrow. So she's screwed because they splice in that word into her commercial. Yes, and I would say it's a pretty uh, obvious splice. That that's one of the things that I think doesn't quite hold water. And then, uh, you know, it it just turns into a uh, I don't know. Every commercial is guilty of hyperbole. It's a sort of silly concept. Like ah, we nailed her, and and at a certain point, she's looking at jail time uh, for for just a slip of the tongue that she didn't even commit. But uh, but hey, it leads to a big climactic chase, uh, and uh, that so you know I, I guess we we can't complain. It, it, it's it's all for the great. Good. Yeah, it's all for the greater good that the, her trial is tomorrow. 
<laughs> so justice moves very fast in Arizona, apparently. Yes. Uh, now, before we get to the trial, though, I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we skipped over what I think is flat out the funniest scene of the whole movie. Okay, I'll set it up. I know what you're talking about. So, yeah, I, of course you do. Yeah. So Barbara Fuchs is going on trial for false advertising. She's going to get her uh, business taken away. And meanwhile, Rudy has no job. Kurt Russell has been fired. And basically, he uh, he's basically needs money to run for his Senate bid, and he has no job anymore. He's been fired. So he puts it all on a football game that he's got. Yeah, he's Garrett got a tip. Graham. Yeah. yeah, Garrett Graham gives him a hot tip that, like, it's a it's a can't-lose bet. Uh, it, uh, so it's uh, – he – uh, he keeps seeing these signs, the number 10. He said, oh, and I, I, uh, I had a $10 bill. I, I noticed this at 10-10, and uh, I'm going to say that the, the, the spread is 10 points. And uh, yeah, hey, just take, make this bet. I, I bet 10 bucks. Uh, Kurt Russell, on the other hand, bets everything on the other team. So he bets against his friend who says it's a sure thing. And uh, for a while, it looks like, yeah, it's a sure thing. Garrett Graham is about to, uh, you know, double his money, I guess, this $10 bet. And uh, he looks over to Kurt Russell and, at the bar and says, uh, what, how much did you bet? And said all of it, all 40000 Yeah. Yeah, Rudy's entire political career rides on this football game that he has bet against his friend Jeff because Jeff is so superstitious, Jeff always loses everything. So Kurt Russell's like, I'll just bet against him, throw all my money onto this. If I win this, I will have enough money to run for my Senate bid. So it comes down to basically the last 10 seconds of the football game, and Jeff finds out that Kurt Russell has bet everything on this game against Jeff's team. So Jeff will go against his instinct and start trying to be as unlucky as possible. Yes. Kurt says, uh, I need some real bad luck for me to win. It will take some real bad luck for me to win this at this point. And that's when Frank McRae slides a salt shaker in front of Garrett Graham. And uh, yeah, he, he uh, th this is not what he would like to do, but he understands it's for the greater good. And so he spills the salt shaker. He spills the salt on the table and instantly there's a fumble on the game. And <laughs> That's all he needs to see. And this is just one of the funniest moments in any movie I've ever seen, period. He starts running around the bar, opening umbrellas indoors, opening umbrellas. He says, uh, uh, does anyone, is there a black cat in the house? A, a ladder. He finds, a, he sees a ladder behind the bar. He slides under the ladder. He's opening more umbrellas. He's taking out all of his rabbit's foots for, feet from his, uh, uh, his pockets. He has a bunch of lucky strike acts that I guess are lucky to him. I, I never heard that, that the, the lucky strike strike was actually lucky and then it all culminates with him throwing a bar stool into a mirror it is so funny this should have been a star making moment for garrett graham it, and uh, it's just a shame it didn't take it's great because it's so synced well with a football game every single time yeah. garrett graham does something that's unlucky something happens in the game right to the left oh there's a fumble oh look he missed that pass and it's just it's really funny although my only complaint with the scene and it's not with the scene itself is that i don't know if it would hold up as well today because i don't know if people know all these superstitions as much as they would have when you and i were kids yeah i wondered at the same thing that um the don't open an umbrella indoors i didn't know that that was such a long-standing mm -hmm. um superstition I, I i think i had heard that you know maybe just within the last 10 years someone like you know said that so uh uh, yeah, may maybe it's a, a little outdated in that sense. All of the the uh, the antics and yeah, like I said, the lucky strike packs in his pocket. I I've never heard that, but uh, it's just such a funny concept. The idea that like 
I am going to, I am so unlucky that I am going to do everything I can to make my luck worse to help you. It's just, it's a sweet moment too. He is, this thing he's been avoiding the entire movie, he is willing to take the hit to help his buddy. Yeah, and at the end of the scene, basically what happens is Kurt Russell has won all this money because his football, this miraculous football ending changed his fortune. Kurt Russell has $40,000 now. He could go run for his Senate bid. Yeah, he's about to give it all to Dub Taylor, who is going to, you know, make it all happen for him. Uh, And that's when Dub Taylor kind of gravelly, I always had trouble understanding a word he was saying in this movie, uh, says something about how, oh, yeah, uh, she's, uh, you know, the the Fuchs daughter, she's going on trial today. And, yeah, oh, it should be a first offense, but she's got this hanging judge, and he'll <laughs> throw the book at her. He he gave, like, a 20, uh, 60 years of hard labor to some guy for, uh, what was it, uh, uh, stealing a car or something? Um, and, uh, yeah, so he's going to throw the book at her, and that's when he, uh, he takes the money back, and he he's, he's going to save her. Yeah, this is where our completely immoral Rudy Russo will actually do the right thing. He is going to spend all his money to become a crooked senator, but he changes his mind at the last minute. He's going to go help poor Barbara Fuchs because they feel bad what they've done to this lady. They feel bad about her legacy. She lost her father. So he's going to end up using that $40,000 to help her out in a extremely convoluted way, but it's really funny. I just love the way this whole is, the subplot is presented. Yeah, they intervene. Yeah, they intervene at court, Uh, you know, just as she's on the stand and, oh, you know, uh, do you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? And this whole movie is all about lying, you know, these liars and stuff. And she is the one good person, the one bit of integrity. And she is, they, you know, she's on the stand and they say, do you have a mile of cars? And she's about to tell the truth. And there's Kurt in the, you know, in the audience, I guess, uh, just nodding, saying, say yes, say yes. And sure enough, she does. And, uh, uh, and, you know, there's a big uproar in the, uh, in the crowd. And, uh, uh, it's decided by the judge played by Grandpa Al Lewis, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, okay, we'll go to the car lot and we'll measure the cars. We'll see if it's a mile of cars. And then I, I guess, you know, they break for lunch <laughs> and uh, it's enough time for Kurt to get these cars to the lot or, you know, or try to. Uh, this is when he enlists the help of, well, you know, if, if he can get, 250 cars or whatever it is but he needs 250 drivers and suddenly all of these kids all of these teenagers who are in driver's ed who need a little road experience are put to work and it's a it's a great set piece of these 250 kids driving 250 cars back to the lot okay uh, there's a couple things i don't want to gloss over there first let's point out that the judge is played by grandpa from the monsters which i just love that he's in this movie I love it too, and he's so funny. He just watching it again last night. I was like, God, he's funnier than I remembered him being in this. He's, I mean, yeah, he, he's he's chewing his his, uh, his 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 tobacco, and he has his on his bench. He's got the little uh, the noose and the little electric chair, and uh, you know, the whole time he's saying like, oh, I could get another eight holes in golf today, and like, oh, but God, it's a beautiful day. I might, might be able to make it to the golf course, but yeah, he's so funny in this role. Yeah, okay, and I keep coming back to the point that there's so many heavy hitters in this movie. So Grandpa from the Munsters is the judge. Kurt Russell is going to go out to the desert to buy all these cars because they have to produce a mile, a literal mile of cars on the lot to prove that she's not false advertising. The guy that lives out in the desert, this shady character who sells Kurt Russell all these shitty cars, is El Guapo from The Three Amigos, which I love. Yes. 
Yeah, not only that, but he uh, transitioned to directing. I never realized he was like the director of Like Water for Chocolate and a few other prestige films. But yeah, I had uh, never quite made that connection to that. Like, uh, you know, he has one of those faces where it's like, yeah, I'd say for pretty much all of the 80s, if you needed a uh, uh, sort of shady Mexican character, he was probably the first phone call. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's great in this and, uh, you know, great in Three Amigos. Uh, yeah, but uh, he, he is there to supply the cars and it's a pretty paltry lot. Uh, you know, the, the, you, you can't imagine that these are going to be good sales, but hey, all they need are those 25 cars at uh, at the dealership or at 250, forgive me. Yeah, okay. 25 yeah. feet. Yeah, let's yeah. clarify that. Okay, so the judge has ruled you must produce a mile of cars because she has said that they do have that. Kurt Russell made her lie on the stand. He's going to be there at 245 in like two hours and they're going to see if there's indeed a mile of cars which we learn this is a good unit of measurement how we don't really do the metric system in the u.s but we do know 250 cars equals a mile in case you're wondering <laughs> uh, apparently yeah i i was trying to do the math in my head I was like eh, okay i don't know uh you know, and to their credit, they do have a tape measure for each car. They're they're adding it up, but uh, yeah, I guess that it's just easy to uh, to to slap a nice round number to it. Yeah. So New Deal really only has 25 cars. They have to get these other 250 to the lot. So Kurt Russell again just won all this forty thousand dollars in a football game. Ostensibly, that's where the money all went. He buys all these shitty cars from El Guapo, and so yeah, the last 20 minutes of the movie is. 250 driver's ed students that Kurt Russell has hired from high school racing from one end of town to the other to get this mile of cars to the lot. And it's this huge ordeal. I mean, this is a huge set piece. And I know in the DVD commentary, they talk about what an ordeal this was, trying to logistically plan this, because this was a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, it's uh, it's on the level of something like Blues Brothers, the finale of that with all of the the, the cars. Now, it, it doesn't uh, there's not nearly as much destruction. Most of these cars make it there intact. But uh, yeah, it is a huge set piece for a fairly low budget film. You just all of these cars in this big convoy chase that you get. Uh, and it looks fantastic. It, 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 you know, suddenly you're watching like a. A, a, a more lighthearted version of a Mad Max chase or something. Yeah, it's really well done. And the more I watch this scene, the more I'm impressed by how they managed to get all those cars on one road, how they managed. At one point, they're going off-roading. It's a huge yeah. convoy of cars going off-roading through the desert in Arizona. And like, uh, yeah, Roy L is going to start chasing them. And this is another part where there's some more dangerous stunts. There's a scene here where Roy L and Rudy, Kurt Russell and Jack Warden, are fighting on top of cars. And it's clearly them in a couple of the scenes. Those are not stunt doubles. That looks really dangerous. Kurt Russell is standing basically on top of a, a car hood while it's moving, and and they're whipping chains at each other. I'm sure it's just a, a, a light rubber chain or something like that. But yeah, it looks dangerous. It's right out of Ben-Hur, this whole like chariot race thing, these these parallel cars fighting. It's so funny, though, that it's the two of them. It's Kurt Russell and Jack Warden whipping each other with chains uh, on these moving cars. It's so funny. And, and yeah, an, an impressive stunt, too. I also want to highlight uh, one of the teen drivers uh, going in destination. The one with the uh, the driving uh, teacher there, uh, the driver's ed teacher, is uh, Mary Jo Sperber, who, uh, Wendy, of course, Wendy was Wendy Jo. In... Oh, what did I say? Mary Jo. Oh, Wendy. Yeah, Wendy Jo 
Oh, yeah. Wendy Jo Sperber from I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was uh, Zemeckis' and Gale's first film. And uh, and then, of course, uh, 1941. And then she'd come back and back to the future. She was on Bosom Buddies. I think that she was just great. She was so funny in all of those films. I, I think she was so talented. And it's really a shame that she had sort of a truncated career and, and died fairly young. And uh, I always forget that she is in this until she pops up. But it's a great little cameo. I'm going to one-up you a little bit like Rudy Russo because I want to talk about her and one of the other drivers, which you may have not caught this other connection. So, when, uh, I, yeah, Wendy Jo yeah, Sperber. I think I do yeah. know who you're talking about. Yeah, Wendy Jo Sperber, she was a really big deal, and she should have been a bigger star. They had a sitcom. She was based on – they had an old show built around her on Fox at one point, and then she got sick. She got breast cancer or something. I forget which, what kind of cancer, and she died. It was very tragic, but she should have been a really much bigger star. But, yeah, she's highlighted in this as one of the drivers. And what's hilarious is if you look, one of the other drivers is Mark McClure, who people may know as Jimmy Olsen from the Superman movies back in the 80s. That's Jimmy Olsen. But if you know your Robert Zemeckis history, he loved working with the same actors in his movies. And it's really funny to watch Used Cars because you see Wendy Jo Sperber, Mark McClure, and Deborah Harmon all three of who are in Back to the Future. Wendy, Back to the Future, yeah. yeah. Wendy Joe and Mark are Marty McFly's brother and sister, and Deborah Harmon appears as a cameo as the newscaster at the start of the movie talking about the plutonium theft. Interesting. I did not know that about Deborah Harmon. I never made that connection. But yes, Mark McClure is really like blinking you miss him. Uh, I, I actually had to rewind and say, wait, was that him? Uh, because, yeah, I recognize him. Yeah. But, uh, Jimmy Olsen, of course. Yeah. He's uh, he's one of the, the Marty's uh, brothers. And then uh, I always grew up watching uh, the original Freaky Friday movie with Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. He's the love interest in that. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, he, he's there uh, behind one of the wheels. Most of the uh, the, the drivers, uh, Zemeckis said, were just uh, local kids. Is that you know they went to the the Tucson high school or something and, and recruited from there but uh yeah it, it's fun to see a few little faces like that pop up I do have to say one other thing is that Wendy Jo Sperber if you guys don't know that's Marty McFly's sister very short woman kind of loud just uh had a very distinct way of talking did you see the way she's credited in the movie at the end credits I just love this credit yes I noticed that too uh Miss Wendy Jo Sperber is it right <laughs> it, it, She's some nobody. They yank her out of high school. They put her in a movie, and she's credited as Miss Wendy Jo Sperber. I have never seen somebody with Miss or Mr. or Mrs. in front of their name before, especially when they're a nobody. It must have been an affectionate thing on set. I mean, she had already done "I Want to Hold Your Hand" with Zemeckis right before okay, this. That's right. So, so you know, they had a uh, they had a, a relationship from that. So maybe there was a, uh, a a somewhat paternal thing for her. She is very funny in that movie, and uh, yeah, she really should have been a star. Uh, you know, un unconventional to, to be sure, uh, but uh, very yeah, just a, a great uh, comedic presence. Okay, so we'll get to the end of the movie here. It's just chaos. The last twenty minutes, just two hundred. 150 cars racing across the Arizona desert, just the worst beater cars you can imagine driven by these kids who, you know, they've been told you need some road time behind the wheel. So this is how they're going to get it. And they're just racing. And Kurt Russell lets them go 75 miles an hour, which at the time was unheard of. Yeah, he calls on the bullhorn like up to 75. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite a chase. And you know what? It looks like they're going to make it like handily. It's going to be fine. Uh, really, it reaches the point that they are almost all at the destination. The only one that they're waiting for, you know, is is the one bringing up the rear, which is uh, Jeff Garrett Graham in a uh, definitively blue car. 
the last car in this caravan is driven by uh, Garrett Graham, who, the guy, again, remember, we said at the start, doesn't like red cars, will not get in a red car, will not drive a red car. But he is the last car in the convoy, and he's in a blue car that, unbeknownst to him, but knownst to us, is actually red under the blue. We can see it through the primer. Yeah, he, he drives past a construction site and gets sprayed with water, and it just washes off enough of that blue paint to see it's a uh, it's a, uh, something fire department. Yeah, it's a St. Louis fire department car. So he realizes his car is red, and he freaks out because this is like the number one sin. This is He will not get in this red car. So he immediately screeches to a halt, stops, and will not go with the rest of the convoy back to the lot. And this is a problem because they only have an 18-foot margin of error. They've measured it. If he doesn't get there, they're not going to get a mile of cars. Yeah, they, they've already lost one car. It was their one safety car that, that crashes uh, in, a, in a big spectacular thing with a, involving a police car. And uh, so, yeah, they really need Garrett Graham to show up. He, they, they have no margin of error after that. Yes, and this is where we get what Johnny teased at earlier, and I will say we are at now. The most dangerous stunt I think I have ever seen in a movie where I will I will try to I will try to paint a picture for you. Uh, you may not remember this if you haven't seen the movie in a while, but it really jumps out at me. It jumps out at Johnny on the commentary. They can't even look at it where Garrett Graham stops his car on the side of the road. He's like, no, I can't be in a red car. I can't. I can't. I can't. And he backs up across the highway. And unbeknownst to him, there's another car zooming down the highway at about 75 miles an hour. And I swear to God, Garrett Graham just backs up, walks towards it, walks towards it, walks towards it. He can't see the car. The other car swerves around him at the last second, still going 75, and it could not have missed him by more than about three inches. It's extraordinary. And the, credit to, to Graham, who does not flinch in any way, shape, or form. He is smiling. He is laughing because he's just kind of crazed from the idea of even being behind a red car for a minute. And he, it is so effortless that he just doesn't react at all to almost dying. He doesn't notice it. That's what makes it so funny. But it truly is terrifying to watch. It looks like he is inches away from death. It doesn't just look like it. He is. There's no way yeah, you can he argue is. that. He, he truly is. Yeah. <laughs> if that thing went wrong in any way, shape, or form, uh, that, that would have been it. Yeah. And like I said, Zemeckis and Kurt Russell in the commentary can't even watch that scene. They're, we get to that part of the commentary. They, like, avert their eyes because they know how close that was. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I have to rewind it numerous times. I just can't get enough of it. It, it, it It's just unworldly to see this, like, th that you know is real. These days, it's it's so easy to, to fake something like that. Uh, but no, th this actually happened. This was, you know, a he, he, de he definitely felt the force of that car going by. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge horror movie fan. I love movies. But I can honestly say there are not many moments in movies that legitimately scare me. Watching Garrett Graham almost plowed by that car at 75, that scares me. Yeah, there's, there's no forced perspective thing. There's no there's no room for like, oh, yeah, but he's like on a wire and it, he, he, they would have pulled him away or something. No, it's just he's walking backwards and the car swerves at just the right moment. <laughs> yeah. So with that, we get to the finale of the movie that Garrett Graham has to get to the New Deal lot before the judge. And the judge is actually already there measuring cars. It's just him. He's the last one. And so Kurt Russell has to get onto a walkie-talkie with him and say, yes, it's a red car, but 
And I think Kurt Russell's probably lying here. We don't know for sure. He says, but it, there's gray primer paint underneath the red. So it's actually a gray car painted red. It's a gray car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always assumed he was lying. You know, it's, it's just all about the layers. It's like, yes, there is a red layer, but that's not the layer. It's, it's blue on the outside and the, 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 the true base of it is gray. So it's fine. And, uh, you know, he he really thinks about it, and he and he uh, I don't and, and he decides, okay, it's a gray car, it's a gray car, and he gets in, and you can hear this toot toot in the background of like a a train coming, and and they ask him, it's like, are you on the east side or the west side of the tracks? And I can't remember which one it is, but it's the wrong side. He better hurry, or else this freight train's going to come by, truly cutting him off, and he'll never make it in time. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of dangerous stunts, I was just reading about this movie today, and I read this as well that so the movie movie's going to end with a train jump. Garrett Graham has to jump his car over a moving train to get to the car lot at the end of the movie. That's the big finale. And the director of this movie and the stunt director, they were like, that's a little too dangerous even for a stunt driver. Because they notice when the car hits the ground, it collapses. So they wouldn't even let a stunt driver do the stunt. They just put a dummy in a car and did it. It's a cool stunt, but when you see it, the car really does collapse when it hits the ground at the bottom. And somebody would have died if that had been a person. Yeah, Zemecka said that they had a stuntman working on the film who desperately wanted to do it, and uh, yeah, no one would allow it in their right ma- minds to, to to put a person in there. And yeah, it, it does look truly, you know, terrifying and dangerous. But <laughs> hey, it's a great action set piece. Yeah, it sure looks good. Yeah, this is like the movie to end all movie safety violations. Like, there's so many problems with this movie just from a safety perspective. It's really fun to watch it. Like, I I can enjoy this movie. I can enjoy this movie on different levels. That's one of them. I'm like, this is easily the most dangerous movie I have ever seen. And keep in mind, I've watched Twilight Zone, the movie. I've seen that as well. <laughs> yes, I, I wasn't going to mention that one. But but I, I do think that this falls into the same genre of so many of those Hal Needham, Burt Reynolds movies. So many of them being just excuses for destruction and stunts and such. I mean, the movie Hooper, one of my favorites, it's about a stunt driver. That That's the plot. And which is just an excuse to have a bunch of exciting driving stunts. And uh, yeah, this finale is a little reminiscent of the end of the first Smokey and the Bandit movie. Uh, Yeah, anytime you just get a bunch of cars, you know, on screen, uh, it's going to attract a certain audience. And it's kind of crazy that this movie didn't at the time. This was a real right time movie. Uh, It was sandwiched between the Smokey and the Bandit movies and the Cannonball Run movies. It should have been right in that sweet spot, right? But uh, yeah, I guess uh, the the counter-programming of Airplane was too much to resist. Well, see, I I mean, I hear that argument, but I know... If I was a comedy movie fan in 1980, I would have seen all the big comedies. So I, you would have made room to watch Airplane and Used Cars. So, like, I don't get why this one didn't even pick up some of Airplane's wake. It picked up nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because, I, I, yeah, it definitely uh, uh, has an appeal and a built-in audience. And it's just, uh, yeah, it was poorly managed, I guess. Uh, it's, uh, as they say, uh, Zemecka said, it was barely released. Yeah, released, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would make the argument. I don't know if you're going to fight me on this one. I think this is way better than Smokey and the Bandit. This is way better than Cannonball Run. I don't know why those are so beloved and this one isn't. Well, 
Cannonball Run is garbage, uh, so I'm with you there. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit, uh, I have a certain affection for as a Burt Reynolds fan, and uh, there is some iconography to some of the imagery in that film, but this is a much funnier movie. This is a better comedy than, say, Smokey and the Bandit. Well, any of the Smokey and the Bandits, certainly. Uh, It it doesn't have Burt Reynolds, but hey, it has uh, Kurt uh, Kurt Russell, who is the next generation of Burt Reynolds, I would say, Uh, and and, and a more successful one at that because, uh, you know, Kurt Russell really hits his stride in the the late 80s, uh, whereas uh, Burt was uh, fading fast. Yeah, and I I guess you could make the argument as well that Smokey and the Bandit has that theme song, and this movie doesn't quite have the same iconic theme song. And there is a song that plays over the end credits called Used Cars, I think, or Trust Me, I I can't remember. There's a bunch of lyrics in there that are geared to to the the thematic subject matter. Uh, But, you know, it's it's not uh, as memorable as, you know, Eastbound and Down. Uh, So, yes, I do think that a lot of what Smokey and the Bandit has going for it, that that memorable stuff, is more the the look of it and the sound of it, more than the plot and the joke, certainly, which, which, you know, uh, it has a few good quotes. But, uh, you know, I I just hope my, my... six-year-old nephew doesn't hear this Smokey and the Bandit is his favorite movie and I sure watched it a lot last year but yeah hey maybe this is a well maybe when he's a little bit older I'll show him used cars yeah I mean it's entirely possible I could do Smokey and the Bandit on staff picks one day just because it was such a huge movie at the time but no one really talks about it anymore people kind of forget what a big deal it was so it would actually would fit staff picks but Man, used cars. I just cannot get over how close this movie was to being a huge hit. Like, it has every ingredient. The time is right. It's got the right star. It's really funny. It's got stunts. It was low budget. It should have made a lot of money. It's like like when a power hitter in baseball gets that pitch that they want, and they just foul it off a little bit, and they know that could have been a 450-foot home run if I just hit it a little different. Like, that's how used cars feels to me. It's like, it's so close to being one of these big iconic comedies, and it just, for whatever reason, didn't happen. Now, on one hand, I kind of appreciate, since it is a movie about these kind of, like, you know, dust-kicking misfits, that, like, well, you don't want used cars to be too big of a movie. Mm -hmm. it, It should fit comfortably in, like, a bit of a cult status thing, but... The cult isn't big enough, even today. Like, the, the, this deserves to be found by more people. People should watch this movie and uh, embrace it. Uh, it. It's so funny. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that, like, it is ripe for discovery. Yeah, and to back that up even further, like I said earlier, that people that like used cars really like used cars. I have read, I have not done this personally, that if you go to Mesa, Arizona, it's like a huge movie location. People love to go there and take pictures of the the, the two lots across from each other. That that's like a big movie location for people to go say, hey, look, I went to the used car place. Yeah, that's great. Uh, th- yeah, it makes me happy that th- that it means that much to some people out there. But yeah, I, I agree. I-, I introduced this to my family this last year. Uh, they had never seen it. Uh, my wife, my parents. And uh, yeah, we had a grand time watching it. I, I couldn't believe uh, that that they they, uh, they they had never even heard of it. And uh, they-, they had a great time with it, as would anyone doing it. Even a child on the night of his mother's funeral. Even that child like me would love this movie. Okay, let's get to the end here. The very end Passes of the movie. the test. Yeah. <laughs> so the very end of the movie is uh, Jeff gets to the, the used car lot, and they're 18 feet short, and his car skids up there, and everyone's like, yay, we did it. And it's like it's like two inches short. They measure his car. I love this ending. It's, the car is not quite 
yeah, the ending, the car isn't quite long enough. And so Jack Warden Royale is like, yes, I won. And he slams his fist, his fist down on the hood, on the trunk of the car. And the little, as they used to have in the 80s, I don't think they still have this. The gas tank was in the license plate. So he slams the car, his fist down. The little license plate just kind of pops down, open the gas tank. It goes boop. And it's like, that's the two inches they need They're, to win. So that's it. They win. That's all you need. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great image. Yeah. It's great. And so Judge Grandpa Munster says, case dismissed. New deal used cars lot is is released from all contracts or whatever. I don't even I forget what he says. But basically, the good guys win, and Deborah Harmon hooks up with Kurt Russell, and apparently they're going to run the lot together, and all is forgiven. And, and she kind of embraces the dishonest side. You know, a, a sweet little old lady says, oh, I see this car over here. It looks like there's yellow paint under it. D- did it used to be a taxi cab? And what she responds with is, "Uh, no, that's just uh, what did she say? Something about that's just primer paint or something." Yeah, I think a yellow primer. (laughs) So she turns into Kurt Russell. She's like immediately realizes you have to lie to sell used cars. So everyone wins in the end. Everybody is Kurt Russell. All the bad guys, the sleazy people, win. Yeah, and yeah, and and, then by that point, you've spent two hours with them nearly. Uh, No one thinks they're sleazy anymore. You you just love them so much. (laughs) Yes, yes. This is the. the Bible of all used car salesmen. I'm sure they all know this movie and they all love it because this is the, a credit to their profession. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that we haven't gotten too many imitators. I know there was like a, a Jeremy Piven used car movie dealership thing, thing like maybe a decade ago and such. But like it does seem like a, uh, a, a kind of ripe for uh, a, a good uh, – a, a, a good setting for a, a comedy. I guess there's the Robin Williams Cadillac Man. Mm-hmm. You know, none of these movies come close to this, but uh, it is a funny uh, setting for your comedy. Yeah, and absolutely. And this this movie has never been remade. They never did a sequel. They never did a prequel. It just is one of these standalone little gems that just exists to be discovered. And people who know it really, really love it. But that's kind of the thing. Not everybody knows it. And it's just... Again, a perfect movie for me on staff picks, and I'm so happy we finally got to cover it in an episode. Yeah, I, I'm so happy to be part of it. I just, I was happy to watch it again, and I'm happy at the thought of, uh, you know, some of your listeners uh, discovering it this way. Yeah, and uh, see, I, it's funny. I've learned, I've heard from a, a lot of listeners recently, people that listen to the show. They're like. You know, the only movies I ever watch anymore are stuff you recommend on Staff Picks, which that actually means a lot to me, that I actually am making an impact that, like, it might not be a huge audience, it might be 20 people, but still, I'm actually spreading the word on some of these movies, and they can go tell somebody, and they can go tell somebody, so, like, Used Cars, among my absolute highest recommendations of any movie I've ever covered. Yeah, I would say top five comedies of the 80s, and, and pretty high up there, too. Wow, that's that's high praise, as Nicolas Cage would say. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a good decade certainly uh, uh, for for comedy and stuff. But like, uh, yeah, I, I guess a lot of those movies uh, of that uh, decade were kind of high concept, or they were like you know strict parodies like uh, 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 Airplane and Top Secret and such. Uh, but yeah, this is just a good uh, character driven comedy, and on that front, it's one of the best. You know, I I, I put it up there with uh, well, I, I guess this was the 70s, but yeah, something like a slap shot. Or uh, bad news bears, or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, any of those. Uh, just uh, j- just a, a gentle hang of a movie. Yeah, and I personally think it could easily hang with Stripes and Caddyshack, which are yeah, always absolutely. considered the iconic movies of that era. This movie slips in right right there with them. I like it better than Stripes and like uh, different from Caddyshack. You know, there's there's a lot about that movie that is just you know it's so incredibly quotable, mm-hmm. and and you got those like four 
big like comedic icon uh, characters in there. Uh, but like I think as a, uh, a story driven film, this this works better. I think it has better set pieces on the whole. Yeah, and it's got Robert Zemeckis behind it again. Yeah, arguably the, one of the greatest directors of all time. This is one of his earliest movies, and it's like it's got a lot of Zemeckis touches in it. And and one more thing, again, this I I just I keep bringing up points because they pop into my head. Everybody loves Kurt Russell. Like I I don't know one person who doesn't enjoy Kurt Russell. If you're a Kurt Russell fan, you have to see this movie, which is an entirely different side of him. So it's like this this is if you're a Kurt Russell completist, you have to at least know this movie. Yeah, I, I wish that we had ten more films just like this from Kurt Russell that that were just that 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 casual cool guy thing. You know, it's a little of uh, I mean, he's not as like dumb a character as he is in like Big Trouble in Little China, but that got that thing where he just balanced the like cool and comedic so well, and he really could do it all. Like when he plays it totally straight in films like you know The Thing or Tombstone, you know, he's still great. But uh, you know, I I just love him in this mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Stuff like this. Sky High. I just like little things like that where he's more comedic. I, I, I always thought he should have been a little bigger name in comedy because he's so likable. So again, just yeah, we're just repeating the same stuff over and over at this point. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I know. I, I can't not talk about it. That man, you know, he, he's just so much fun. Okay, so anything you want to plug before uh, we sign off here? Any other projects you got working on where people could find you or anything? Uh, sure. Uh, well, yes. Uh, check me out on Letterboxd, uh, under Johnny Pomato, and I, uh, I, I, uh, will, uh, I, I write reviews every day for everything I see. I'm, I'm nearing in on the end of the year, and, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to hit 600, but, oh, it's been a slow week at that. But, uh, but yes, I, I've seen all the big releases for the year, and I just need to do some catch up on some smaller stuff. And, uh, I am also occasionally featured on the podcast authorized in which we uh discuss uh movie novelizations which um you know is sometimes fun and sometimes uh excruciating but uh, not the never the podcast just the act of reading say the batman and robin novelization <laughs> but uh but it, it's a fun podcast nonetheless did they ever create a novelization on used cars you know what? That is a good question. And uh, the early 80s were the prime time for novelizations uh, of just about any movie. B- movies you would never think would someone would put pen to paper to write uh, out the story of. Uh, they would usually get them. So uh, thank you so much for inspiring me to do that research. I will have to look into that. <laughs> I should point out that I own the novelization for perhaps the worst movie ever made, which is The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, that is impressive. I saw that movie last year, uh, maybe not on your recommendation, but you and I have been discussing Bad News Bears because I know you are such a fan, as am I. Uh, you you did give a much higher recommendation to In Breaking Training, <laughs> which I will admit uh, a better sequel to Bad News Bears than I expected there to be. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Japan one, uh, pretty indefensible. That, that one's uh, <laughs> real bad. Yeah, I, I, you said I didn't really give a glowing review of the Bad News Bears Go to Japan. I believe my actual review on the podcast was, if you buy the DVD collection of all the Bad News Bears movies, just take Japan out and wipe your ass with it and throw it away. I think that was my actual recommendation. 
Well, I did just purchase uh, in breaking training uh, uh, for an uh, uh, an Australian import uh, Blu-ray is going to be coming my way for that one, which I never thought I would want to expand my Bad News Bears uh, filmography. But I, I will soon own that one. But yes, I, I am going to be just fine if no one ever touches uh, in Japan or goes to Japan. Yeah. And before we sign off, I have to point out I'm very much looking forward to the day when Johnny and I get in a literal fist fight over very bad things. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to that as well. Although, uh, you know, I, I think we'll both emerge unscathed, unlike most of the rest of the cast of that movie. You know, we'll, uh, we'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be friendly about it. And, uh, you know, no one's going to get hit by a car or, uh, you know, but, but someone's in a wheelchair at the end with their missing legs. Uh, uh, well, what a, what a dreadful little film. Yet I can't wait to hear you sing wax poetic for it. <laughs> Okay, with that, I'm going to sign off and just send everybody out. Go find used cars, Kurt Russell's little scene masterpiece. And uh, again, once again, this is Staff Picks. I am Mario Lanza. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I sure as hell won't be driving a red car when I'm looking for them. I will talk to you guys later. Bye. Damn minute, what the hell is this? Is this a 1977 Mercedes 450 SL for $24,000? That's too fucking high!